okay? Uh, he was, he was uh, uh, identified as someone involved in shoplifting, right? Well, come to find out he didn't do it. Come to find out he didn't do it. But he was cut from the Dallas Cowboys football team because he was wrongly identified. So we're going to talk about that some as well, okay? Okay, so we're on Blog Talk Radio uh, right now also. Okay, so welcome to those listening on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, you listen to the African History Network show. Um I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. I'm a talk show host, researcher, lecturer, and writer. Uh, we're on live uh, on Blog Talk Radio as well. And uh, you can call in with questions and comments, 914-338-1375. 914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment uh, as well. Okay, just give me a minute here. Uh, I have articles all over the place. And... Um, if you missed the show this morning on 9:10 a.m. the Superstation, the Voice of Detroit, I mean that was a fantastic show, man. We dealt with a ton of history uh, surrounding the Detroit Rebellion, uh, surrounding some of the history of Detroit, but also some African American history throughout the country as well. Okay, we dealt with all of that. So we have that on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network. You can watch. Um, you can uh, watch the video because I, I broadcast it on Facebook Live also, okay? All right, so um, the NAACP National Conference is going on this week, right? And they talked about it on uh, News One Now with Roland Martin. Uh, they broadcast it from the conference at least one day. And uh, they interviewed, uh, they had a panel, and they interviewed the um, the uh, – they, they interviewed the uh, interim director of the NAACP also, okay? And they dealt with um, how to make the NAACP relevant in the era of Donald Trump. They talked about some of the things that the NAACP is involved in. It was a very, very good uh, revealing uh, interview about the NAACP, Okay. All right, I'm just checking to make sure we're broadcasting on Facebook Live. Oh, I mean, uh, Blog Talk. Okay, so we're on Blog Talk right now also. All right, so you got to forgive me. It's been a very, very hectic day. I only had two hours of sleep <clears throat> last night. I didn't get to bed till about 3 in the morning. I got up at 5 a.m. because I had to drive to the radio station this morning and uh, get ready. And I was up all night pulling together content for this morning's two-hour segment on uh, uh, Steve Hood's radio show, okay? So uh, we had a hell of a show this morning. <laughs> Phone lines were lit up. Um, so the interim director of the NAACP recently talked about how to improve the relevancy of the 100-year-old civil rights organization in the Donald Trump era, and this is extremely important. He talked about a lot of initiatives the NAACP is involved in that a lot of people don't even know about, okay? Because a lot of times when people, uh, you know, I, I, I find this, to be true. A lot of times people criticize the NAACP. They say, what are they doing? Blah, blah, blah. Right. I ask them, have you been to the NAACP's national website? NAACP, uh, I think it's NAACP.org. They say no. Because if you go to their website, you can find out a lot about what they're involved in. You know, so I just find that very interesting. They say, oh, they ain't doing this. They ain't doing that. I say, yeah, have, you, have you been to their website to see what they're doing? Essence Magazine is in the news. Now, we know Ebony Magazine is having financial problems, right? Ebony Magazine is having financial problems. 
Ebony Magazine owes, I think it's something like $200,000 to writers. Uh, writers are still trying to get money, uh, get paid for work they've already done. But Essence Magazine is, uh, is in the news, and it's been announced that Time, Inc., um, that owns a majority stake in Essence Magazine, is seeking a buyer for its majority stake in Essence Magazine. So the question is coming up now. Can Essence Magazine be African-American-owned once again? Can Essence Magazine be African-American-owned once again? Okay? And this is an extremely important question. It should be African-American-owned once again, number one. We have to be able to control our own media. We have to own our own media. Okay? Uh, this, is, this is extremely, extremely important. All right, so... Uh, we'll talk about that on the show tonight also. And then the creators of the TV show Games of Thrones, uh, G- Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones from HBO, okay? They're in the news because uh, they, along with um, two African-American uh, producers, are they, they, they have an idea to develop a series for HBO about um, about what happened if the South won the Civil War. What happened if the South won the Civil War? Okay, and the name of the the, the proposed name of the show is called Confederate. Confederate. Okay, and this is dealing with the um, Civil War. Right. We know that the the South loses. The Civil War, uh, slavery is going to end, chattel slavery ends in 1865 because the South loses the Civil War. And you have uh, people who are proposing to make this uh, TV series. It's not a movie. It'll be a weekly TV series, okay? And this is in the era of Donald Trump. This is in the era of Donald Trump. So... You have um, people asking why, and the the most disturbing thing about this is that you have two African Americans who uh, are producers who are involved in this project as well, and that's that's very disturbing. Okay, and I know the Root dot com had an article about this. They called this a white supremacist wet dream. A white supremacist wet dream to have a TV show like this. All right. So we'll deal with this and more uh, tonight on the African History Network show. Okay. All right. So um, we're broadcasting on uh, Blog Talk Radio, also blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show. Blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show. Okay. Uh, you can listen there, and we're about to uh, post a link here. Uh, also, uh, we're going to post a link again here on the thread of the broadcast as well, okay? So on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct your own behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. 
what you have been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man's thoughts, you can control the circumference of his actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the show. We deal with current events and history and politics and education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, to 22828 to sign up for our email newsletter. Also, go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. You can sign up for our email newsletter there as well, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, okay? All right. Um, I'm going to get started here in just a minute. I need to adjust the lighting here uh, as well. Well, let me see something here. I guess the lighting is, okay, you know what? I'll leave the light in the way it is. I usually have additional light on, but then it, uh, yeah, I guess the lighting looks better this way, so we'll leave it like this, all right? Okay. So, here I want to remind you, um, register for the online course that I teach, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, What They Didn't Teach You in School, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, What They Didn't Teach You in School. This is a 12-hour, six-week online course that I teach. Um, You can visit AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We normally do it on uh, Friday, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we do with thousands of years of history. All the sessions are recorded, so if you miss anything, you can go back and watch it over and over again. Okay. Uh ancient Kemet, the more than the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Um and uh, we also have about twelve hours of bonus content there as well. Uh course is only forty dollars. And uh, we'll post the link here. Uh next class is uh Friday, July twenty eighth, seven PM. Uh Eastern Standard Time, okay? And uh, let's post a link here on the thread also of the broadcast, all right? Okay, uh, I need to adjust the lighting here because it's getting darker. And um, so while I do that, here's a little uh, Malcolm X. And when we come back, we're going to get into the story about Gilbert Arenas, okay? Get into, this is a very disturbing story about Gilbert Arenas uh, once again, attacking uh, Lapita uh, Nyong'o, all right, online uh, about her looks. And uh, I think Lapita Nyong'o is a very beautiful sister, but I like dark-skinned women, okay? If you, have, if, if you suffer from self-hatred, oftentimes you're not going to think that dark-skinned women are attractive, Okay. And this is part of the problem, all right? Um, so here's a little uh, Malcolm X. Uh, Malcolm X asking the question, uh, who taught you to hate yourself? We'll go to this clip here in just a minute. Who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate?
also deprived the government of revenue. That's uh, asking the question, asking the question, who taught you to hate yourself? Who taught you to hate yourself? And that's a good segue into this uh, first topic here, dealing with uh, Gilbert Arenas, okay? Uh, Gilbert Arenas, uh, former Golden State uh, Warrior, uh, played in the NBA, former uh, NBA superstar, Gilbert Arenas. And he has, in the past, made some derogatory comments about Lapita Nyong'o, okay? So we first uh, learned about Lapita Nyong'o from the movie 12 Years a Slave, right? She played an uh, enslaved African in the movie 12 Years a Slave. She's a beautiful uh, African woman, dark-skinned African woman, and everybody knows I like chocolate. If it ain't black, I throw it back. Everybody knows this about me, okay? Um and, you know, I like sisters blacking in a thousand midnights. Okay, that's just, that's just, I like light-skinned women also, but, you know, ain't nothing like a dark-skinned sister. I like sisters blacking in a thousand midnights. So, with that being said, uh, there was an article, there were a couple of articles recently. We posted one yesterday from the root.com, the root.com, that got 2,000 likes. Okay, we posted here on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network, the African History Network. Okay, uh, <laughs> all right, Seta, Seta, I'm an L said, what the hell do he think he looked like? <laughs> oh, ugly dog. Okay, <laughs> all right. So um, the article from the root.com uh, is entitled um, Gilbert Arenas once again comes for Lapita Nyong'o over her dark skin. Gilbert Arenas, once again, comes for Lapita Nyong'o over her dark skin. Now, this is not the first time he's attacked her and made derogatory statements about her, okay? So I'm going to show you this picture here because uh, I'm using, uh, we're broadcasting through Crowdcast, so uh, I can incorporate video also, okay? 
So you can actually, uh, you'll be actually this, able to see this as well. Okay, so um, it, it seems that Gilbert Arenas has an issue with Oscar-winning actress Lupita Nyong'o. Uh, Lupita posted a picture of herself vacationing in Mexico uh, with her beautiful skin glistening in the sun. But uh, Gilbert Arenas has something negative to say about it. Now, why he keeps picking on Lapita, I don't understand this. Once again, this is not his first time uh, talking about her, okay? And uh, let's, uh, let's blow this up so you can see it here. Okay. Uh, okay, let's blow this up so you can see it here. All right. So you have a picture of Lapita Nyong'o, and uh, we're going to try to blow this up again. All right. So I think you can see this. Okay. So um, on social media, what happened was uh, Gilbert commented on this and uh, there was some Instagram. uh, He commented on Instagram. Okay. So uh, there was somebody named WG Bombshell on uh, Instagram who commented to Gilbert Arenas. Gilbert Arenas' uh, username on Instagram is no.chill.gil, G-I-L. He said, hey, looks, uh, look, it's the black girl you said that looks better in the dark. Okay, meant to say dark, better in the dark, all right? Uh, Gilbert Arenas responded back, everybody's saying her skin looks beautiful. How about her face, though? Lights off, okay? So, uh, Gilbert Arenas goes on to say, um, uh, y'all tag me like she got a facelift and she went through a, she went from a three to a 10. Nope. She's just a three in blue water with some blue blockers on. Okay. Now this is a very beautiful sister, but you know, to, I, I really think to appreciate dark skin, if you're African American to really appreciate dark skin, you have to love yourself. If you suffer from a self-hatred, which many African-Americans suffer from because we've been stripped of African history and culture, and the dominant media teaches us that light skin is dominant, more attractive, more European features are dominant, more attractive, right? So if, you don't, if you're not rooted in your history and culture, to counter that, you're going to buy into these Stereotypes, you're going to buy into these messages fed to you through the television, fed to you through the television, okay? So um, he goes on to respond, Gilbert Arenas goes on to respond, uh, okay, nope, she's just a three in blue water with some blue blockers on. This is no diff uh, than an ugly girl with a fat ass, okay? I'll still beat up just with the lights off, but she is glowing, though. So he's saying, I'll still have sex with her, but I'm going to have to have sex with her with the lights off because she's so ugly. This is what he's saying. I'll, I'll still beat it. He meant to say beat it up, okay, it, meaning having sex with her. So Gilbert Arenas goes on to say, women are so funny. I'm ugly to 95% of y'all, but I ain't mad. Lights off, okay? So it appears that... uh uh, I, I guess women in the past have said Gilbert Arenas is not attractive or something like that. But he says no, no dot chill dot gill. 
says, women are so funny. I'm ugly to 95% of y'all, but I ain't mad. Lights off. Once again, referring to the fact that he's saying to have sex with Lupita Nyong'o, he has to have the lights off. All right. So my thing is, well, first of all, if you don't think the sister is attractive, why do you have to comment? Why do you have to attack her? I mean, she's, she's vacationing. Why, why do you have to do this? But this goes deeper to a psychology and goes deeper to a self-hatred because it really sounds like he is dealing with the pain of being rejected by many African-American women. When he actually posts on social media, he says, women are so funny, I'm ugly to 95% of y'all. So one of the things we have to understand is that hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. So people who have been hurt in different ways, physical abuse, psychological abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, oftentimes become abusers themselves, okay, if they don't get the proper counseling, et cetera, all right? And it it seems like he is dealing with, also with the hurt of being rejected by African-American women and, and many of them saying that, that according to them, they think that he's ugly. All right. Even though he's a multimillionaire. Now, this is not the first time he's gone after Lapita Nyong'o. Earlier this year, Gilbert Arenas took his first shot at Lapita Nyong'o over her skin tone, saying that no one wants a woman that dark. No one wants a woman that dark. Speak for yourself. Compared to what I like, Lapita Nyong'o is, is light skin. Speak for yourself. No, the dark skinned sisters are very beautiful. Okay, light skin. Don't get me wrong. I like light skinned women also, but I like sisters all shades. If you see me with a white woman, that means I'm holding up for the police. Okay, <laughs> I'm just saying. All right, <laughs> but well, you know we have to dig deeper and understand that what you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you have been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. Okay? So, we're all Trying to recover. We're all, I, I talk about how we're all going through a 12-step recovery process, trying to recover from the negative side effects of white supremacy and racism. We're all going through a 12-step recovery process, trying to recover from the negative side effects of white supremacy and racism. All right? And this is an example of this, okay? This self-hatred. If, if, if you don't think the sister is attractive, why do you have to comment on social media like this? Okay, and attack her. So earlier this year, early earlier in 2017, Gilbert Arenas took his first shot at, at Lapita Nyong'o over her skin tone, saying that no one wants a woman that dark. Okay, um, he said, uh, and let's go back. We'll blow this up so you can see this also. Okay, because I'm using this technology here that allows us to do this. Crowdcast. Better use it. They just charged me yesterday. Pissed me off. <laughs> Didn't want to pay the bill. <laughs> All right, so um, 
Let's go back to this. Okay. All right. So not to be uh, – so Gilbert Arenas early this year said not to be funny, but can you name a beautiful black woman on the outside, not brown skin, but Tyrese Black, but Tyrese Black. Now, this is the article from TheRoot.com, okay? And we're going to go to that article. I'm going to let you see that one also here, okay? So let's go to that one right here. Let you see that here on uh, Facebook. Okay, good. Okay, you can see it now. So this is the article from TheRoot.com entitled um, Gilbert Arenas once again comes for Lapita Nyong'o over her dark skin. Gilbert Arenas once again comes for Lapita Nyong'o over her dark skin. This is by Yasha Callahan. Yasha Callahan, okay? Um, This is from July, uh, I think this is July 21st, I think this is from, okay? I'm not sure which date this is. Oh, yeah, maybe it's yesterday. I hate that. You know, just, you know, one of my pet peeves, okay? I write articles. I'm in media. I do radio. God damn it. Will you please put the date on these goddamn articles? I hate this stuff. Don't put yesterday. Put the goddamn date on these articles. I hate that. Because I, I reference these articles. When you look at the New York Times and Washington Post, they don't have stupid stuff like yesterday. They put the date and the Washington Post puts the time that it was uploaded. And if it's been updated, they put the time it was updated. Okay, I'm sorry. I just, this that stuff pisses me off. Okay, so Gilbert Arena said not to be funny. But can you name a beautiful black woman on the outside, not brown skin, but Tyrese Black? Tyrese the singer, Tyrese the actor, Transformers, uh, Fast and Furious franchise. Started out uh, in a Coca-Cola commercial. Discovered in the Coca-Cola commercial. Tyrese. Okay. Um, Okay, why is it showing this damn video here? Okay, here we go. All right, so let's go back to this. All right, so he said, uh, when you have African features, black, when, when you have African features, black, then you have, number one, Lapita Nyong'o, and she's cute when the lights are off. Second, you have Ajuma Nasiana. Uh, Sorry, but ooh. Ew. So the black beautiful women you boost up is technically light skin or brown skin, quote unquote. Now, this is what Gilbert Arenas posted on Instagram earlier this year. OK, this is what he posted on Instagram earlier this year. Now, after being dragged on social media and having people point out that his own daughters are dark skin, Gilbert Arenas posted an apology. Now, think about this. Okay, think about this. Your own daughters are dark skinned. And you have these negative views about dark skinned women. Your own daughters are dark skinned. And you have these negative views about dark skinned women. So what are you teaching your daughters 
What type of self-esteem are you building for your daughters? If this is what you really think of dark-skinned women. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. So after being dragged on social media and having people point out that his own daughters are dark-skinned, Gilbert Arenas did post an apology. He did post an apology. Okay? So um, he said... Go back to this. So he said, "How black are?" Um, let's see here. So you had somebody who posted on social media uh, in response to an Instagram post from Pro Black Thought that read, "Dear Black Girl, you don't have to be mixed to be beautiful." Gilbert Arenas went on a rant. Okay, and this was early this year. Uh, Okay, so that, 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 that was the post I just read, all right? So Gilbert Arenas apologized, and he said, um, let's go back to this. He said, I never say sorry for the uh, expletive I say, but it's my fault I read this wrong and got into my feelings. I, 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 thought, it was, I thought it was saying, if you're mixed, you're not considered black and beautiful, and my kids are mixed and dark-skinned, so I perceived it how I wanted to. I just got off the phone with the only woman, only woman who tells me when my stuff stinks, and I know it comes from the heart because she will defend me in front of everyone else and cuss me out when we're alone, okay? Uh, that's Christy Arenas, all right? Uh, I guess that's his wife. Uh, she uh, she reread what it said, your African features are all the attractiveness you need, okay? Your African features are all the attractiveness, attractiveness you need. So I, so I erased to kind of, uh, so I erased to kind of say sorry, but but not say sorry because you can't truly blame me uh, for reading it wrong. I went to public school, okay? So I read it how I thought it was written. I effed this up. I deserve the hatred that comes. I was trying to defend all shades of black, but that's what the post was also doing. I ended up pulling a coon comment, his word, C-O-O-N, moment. Um, sorry, all shades of black women. No need to forgive me. I'm pretty sure I'll say some effed up stuff probably in two weeks. I know uh, P-word prices about about to double up on my ass from black women. And for and, and as far as Lapita, uh, she ain't cute to me. Sorry, just like I'm not cute to 95 percent of you. OK, so once again, when you look at this. You see, it appears. A hurt. From Gilbert Arenas. Now, this was posted earlier this year. This was his uh, in response to his initial comments early in the year against Lapita Nyong'o. All right. And, and, and it's, it is crazy that he posted. This. Now, this post on Instagram 
got 4,550 likes, got 2,946 comments. This is his post on Instagram, okay? He said, I know P-word prices about to double up on my ass from black women, okay? So I guess he's admitting he's engaged in prostitution. Uh oh. Okay. It's you know, ain't, ain't, ain't something you know you may want to put on social media, but okay. All right. Uh, uh, you know, I hope it, it, you know it, you know a word of advice to uh, athletes. Uh, be careful about what you put on social media because when you are trying to get endorsement deals, uh, they go look at your social media account and say, do we want to be associated with this type of you know athlete? things like this. I know he's made millions, but still, that doesn't last forever. You still may want other endorsement deals or what have you. He said, and as far as Lapita, she ain't cute to me. Sorry. Just like I'm not cute to 95% of you. All right. So once again, so so that was early in the year. Don't know the exact date of this post. I'm trying to find it. I wish they put this here. Um... So it appears it was around April of this. It was around mid-April of 2017, it appears, looking at the original post. Um, um, it appears that it was um, original post was April 14, 2017. So he uh, responded right around that time. Okay. And then if you look at his response to... Uh, his attack on Lapita recently, just a few days ago, he then posted once again that um, I'm, I'm ugly to 95% of y'all, okay? Let's go back to this here. How do we blow this up? Okay. He then posted once again, uh, Women are so funny. I'm ugly to 95% of y'all, but I ain't mad. Lights off. Okay, so once again, he said that. All right. Now, what's interesting about Lapita Nyong'o, okay, and let me show you this picture here. 2014, Lapita Nyong'o was named People Magazine's most beautiful person. People Magazine's most beautiful person. All right. In 2014. And uh, I'm going to show you this picture here. And you got to bear with me because I'm, I'm um, toggling back and forth between different technologies here. And now I'm about to go to a uh, PowerPoint presentation. I want to show you this picture of Lapita Nyong'o. All right. And uh, let's flip over here to this picture here. All right. So 2014, April 23rd, 2014, Lapita Nyong'o was named People Magazine's most beautiful person. People Magazine's most beautiful person. All right. And uh, they did, you know, I, I talk about this in some of my presentations. And I actually wrote an article about this. Right. So here is Lapita Nyong'o on the cover of People Magazine in 2014. So people got it right. Now, we don't need Europeans to validate our beauty. But but People Magazine got it correct. This is a beautiful sister. Now, how is it that People Magazine can recognize her beauty, but a brother that's just a couple shades lighter than her can't? 
How is it that People Magazine can recognize her beauty, but a brother just a couple shades lighter than her cannot? Okay, so I wrote an article about this uh, May 9th, 2016, all right? And ABC World News Tonight did a story about this, all right? And I have the video of the story in my article. The name of the article is called Lapita Nyong'o Explains Why She Prayed to God to Make Her Light Skin. Lapita Nyong'o explains why she prayed to God to make her light skin. <clears throat> so, um, Diane Sawyer was the anchor for this story. Deborah Roberts uh, was reporting for ABC World News Tonight. And Deborah Roberts uh, talked to Dr. Deidre Royster, Dr. Deidre Royster, who's a Ph.D., and who's a sociologist from New York University. And Dr. Deidre Royster administered a, uh, a white dial, black dial test with um, girls ages five to eight, okay, of different ethnicities. Girls ages five to eight of different ethnicities, right? So what happened was uh, in, the, um, in the video, they talk about uh, Lapita Nyong'o um, praying to God that God made her light skin. She talked about a problem. She grew up in Africa, and she talked about uh, a problem with uh, her self-esteem and being dark-skinned, okay? And she said that at nighttime, she would pray to God. She said she had one wish when she was a child, and she said she would pray to God that God made her light skin Before she went to bed each night, she prayed to God that God made her light skin. All right. So um, she was also interviewed by Glamour magazine, November 3rd, 2014. Lapita Nyong'o. And in this interview, the interviewer asked her, uh, you receive lots of attention for your looks. You received lots of attention for your looks. Did you grow up feeling beautiful? Did you grow up feeling beautiful? Lapita Nyong'o responded, quote, European standards of beauty are something that plagued the entire world. European standards of beauty are something that plagued the entire world. The idea that darker skin is not beautiful and that light skin is the key to success and love, Africa is no exception. Listen to this. So Lapita Nyong'o is speaking from a place of hurt because she grew up in Africa not loving her dark skin, okay? And once again, this is, this is a beautiful sister, all right? Once again, this is a beautiful sister. She said that European standards of beauty are something that plagued the entire world because white supremacy is a global system. These images are projected around the world. These images are projected around the world. She said the idea that darker skin is not beautiful, that light skin is the key to success and love. Africa is no exception. She said, when I was in the second grade, one of my teachers said, quote, where are you going to find a husband? How are you going to find someone darker than you? She said, I was mortified. So she grew up with this type of low self-esteem and this type of uh, feeling inadequate based upon white supremacy and racism 
based upon her skin complexion and the way other people responded to her. Okay. I think her self-esteem is much higher now. Very beautiful sister. But when we look at the uh, Dow test that Dr. Deidre Royster uh, administered, right? Uh, we saw that the uh, the majority of the girls picked, uh, continued to pick the white dial with the blonde hair as the pretty dial, as the smart dial, things like this, right? So Deborah Roberts, who's African-American and dark-skinned, okay, um, asked a question to Dr. Deidre Royster, sociologist administering this test. She said, what does that say to you? about the messages they're getting, referring to the little girls. Now, these are girls of different ethnicities. They have Asian girls, African-American girls, white girls, etc. All right? Dr. Deidre Royster, who's a white woman, responded, blonder, lighter, more European features are still seen as the most desirable. Blonder, lighter, more European features are still seen as the most desirable. So I asked the question, what happens to our children when they put a higher value on European features than their own features? What are we telling them, and why are some of our parents too ignorant to protect them from this? So this is why every African-American home has to have an education center. Because, see, what you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. Your thoughts create feelings. Your feelings create actions and behaviors. Your actions and behaviors create results. Your thoughts create feelings. Your feelings create actions and behaviors. Your actions and behaviors create results, okay? So when you have uh, – this is why every African-American home has to have an education center. We have to have the African history books. We have to have the uh, uh, children's books with African-American characters that look like them. We have to have the DVDs and the, and the dictionaries and all this type of information. They're the science books, the math books, okay, et cetera, uh, to build positive self-esteem for our children. And what happens now, – now, I asked a question in my article, and everybody read this article. You know, we'll post the link here on the thread on Facebook, okay? And uh, you can call in if you have any questions, 914-338-1375, questions or comments, 914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have any questions or comments. 914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have uh, any questions or comments. Press the number one key to put you in queue to bring you on the air, okay? 914-338-1375. How's everybody doing on Facebook? Share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends uh, to tune in also, okay? All right, so... I asked the question, if African-American girls grow up and think that their skin tone is inferior, and a lot of this is fed to us through uh, the media and the television, because in the, in, in the article and in the piece from ABC World News Tonight, they say, uh, Deborah Roberts says, the story, uh, Deborah Roberts says, TV may be partly to blame for the, for the, um, the way African-American children think and the way these children think, okay, and valuing the, the, the white dial with the blonde hair over the other dials. TV may be partly to blame. 76% of the faces we see are white and just 16% are black. They're talking about in primetime TV, but to a large extent, 
even TV that's not prime time drastically reflects this also. TV may be partly to blame. 76% of the faces we see are white and just 16% are black, which might explain the girl's response when asked who would they prefer to look like. Because when asked who would they prefer to look like, most of them said the white doll with the blonde hair. Then at the very end of the segment, at the very end of the segment, they asked the girls, which doll do you want to take home with you? And there was a tug of war with these girls of different ethnicities over the white doll with the blonde hair. Over the white doll with the blonde hair. So if you have African-American girls who have been subjected to this, okay, this type of programming, and it's not corrected, then do they grow up, then do they grow up to be African-American women who, uh, who try to subscribe to a European standard of beauty? They may try to lighten their skin, straighten their hair, try to look like white women because they are trying to acquiesce to a European standard of beauty. When they have children, and they have African-American boys. People have to understand the psychology here. Because uh, usually most boys think that their mother is beautiful. Okay? Most boys think that their mother is beautiful. All right? And the African-American mother reinforces a standard of beauty to that African-American male child. It can be an African-centered standard of beauty. It could be a European-centered standard of beauty, all right? So if you have an African-American mother who, as a girl, valued white, blonder, lighter, more European features over her own features, and she grows up to be a woman and the mother, and that's not corrected, she would then re- she could then very well reinforce those same standards to that African-American male child. So then will we be surprised if he grows up to actually want a real white woman over an imitation of a white woman? Will we be, will we be surprised if he has a real tug of war over a white woman with blonde hair, just like these little girls had a tug of war over a white doll with blonde hair? So the, this is why the power of image is so important. One of my teachers, Dr. Leonard Jeffries, talks about how whoever controls the images controls the self-esteem, the self-development, the self-worth of the people. Whoever controls the history controls the vision. This is why media is so important. Power is the ability to define and shape reality and have other people accept your definition, definition of reality as if it were their own. Power coming from the Latin word poter, meaning to be able, as um, our brother Dr. Wade Nobles teaches us. Okay, so this is why this type of information is so important. This is why we have to reclaim African history and culture, which gives us our foundation. It gives us our VIPs, our values, our interests and our principles, our values, our interests and our principles. It gives us our standard of beauty. Your self-esteem is, 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 is tied to your understanding of your history and culture, largely to that. And culture acts as an immune system, as Dr. Marima Ani teaches us. It acts as an, as an immune system which keeps foreign elements from coming in and attacking you. But your, your, your culture and your history are related to your self-image and your self-esteem, which is related to your economics, which is related to your politics. So 
when we look at African Americans with a one point three trillion dollar economy, and we deal with this in the you know the documentary Black Friday, what legacy will you leave? Okay, and and look out for Black Friday Part Two, the African Global Legacy, uh, which premieres in Atlanta October thirteenth, two thousand seventeen. I just uh, two weeks ago. Uh, two weekends ago, I was in Atlanta filming my portion of the film. We were on top of Stone Mountain uh, with director Rick Mathis filming it, right? So w- when, when you have African-Americans who have a $1.3 trillion economy and 97% of our dollars are spent with people that don't look like us and we keep talking about, well, we need to do more business with each other, blah, 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 right? It's because we've been stripped of our history and culture. And the culture is the cohesiveness that binds the people together and teaches them the only way they're going to survive is through self-reliance. And the history gives examples of this. But the other thing is, is that if you feel that you are, subconsciously, you feel that you are inferior and you've been fed these negative stereotypical images of yourself through white supremacy, this is why we have to go after negative images of ourselves like tv shows like empire okay this is why we have to go after the after this stuff okay and and hold these people accountable because this is destructive and i've been studying media for 25 years i've been studying african history african-american history culture spiritual system uh economic empowerment entrepreneurship and media for 25 years when you have a 1.3 trillion dollar economy 97 percent of your dollars are spent with people that don't look like you right the question has to be asked if subconsciously many of us think that we are inferior if subconsciously many of us don't like our complexion if subconsciously we're trying to acquiesce to a european standard of beauty would you take your hard-earned dollars that you perceive has value and spend your hard-earned dollars with people who you don't perceive have value. If you have a negative perception of yourself, would you take your hard-earned dollars that you perceive has value and spend it with people that look like you, that tacitly, subconsciously, you don't like either? So this, this, this is why we, this, is, this is deep and it's psychological. It's beyond just African-Americans need to do business with one another. No, we have to deal with the psychology of African-Americans. We have to deal with the psychology of us and understand what happens when you strip a people of their history and culture. Because it's your history and culture that gives you your VIPs, your values, your interests, and your principles, which influences your economic empowerment and influences your political empowerment. So, for instance, if we look at this, and also these are some of the things we deal with in the online course that I teach also, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school, okay? Um, And we do this online course on Friday, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's a 12-hour, six-week online course. All the sessions are recorded. Um, If you miss any of the sessions, you can go back and watch it over and over again. Uh, we'll post a link once again here on the thread of the broadcast. You can also go to AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, it's on the homepage of the website uh, as well, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Um, and as soon as you register, you can watch the first four weeks of the course, and we have 12 hours of bonus content also, okay? Uh, so we deal with some of this type of information in, in the course. So um, if you look at from Nielsen, A.C. Nielsen, right? A.C. Nielsen. So, so Nielsen calculates the uh, TV ratings. 
Nielsen calculates the TV ratings, okay? Um, if you look at the um, state of the African-American consumer from 2011, compiled by, by Nielsen.com, Nielsen, state of the African-American consumer, if you look at this, they talk about how African-American adults 18 to 49 years old watch 7.2 hours of TV per day. African-American adults 18 to 49 watch 7.2 hours of TV per day. African-American children watch almost six hours of TV per day, five hours and 54 minutes. And you, you, you can read the article, uh, Media Overload, and look at exactly how much youth of color consume. Media Overload, they look at exactly how much uh, youth of color consume. This is from colorlines.com. This is from 2011. The new information is probably right along the same lines. So six hours of TV a day, that's 42 hours a week. And when you look at the article that I wrote, Lapita Nyong'o explains why she prayed to God to make her light skin, right? You can read all of my articles at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. You can read all of my articles there, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. It says TV may be partly to blame. 76% of the faces we see are white and just 16% are black. So the number one way that European white supremacist images are fed to us, they're fed to us through the television. They're fed to us through the television. Okay? You call it TV, I call it television because it's a vision that tells lies. Now, there's some good programming. There's, there's some good information on there. I watch MSNBC between 6 and 10 hours a day. All right? Because I, I deal with a lot of news. I do radio. Uh, not just this show. I do radio here in Detroit. And I, up until April of this year, I was doing national radio five days a week. Watch News One now, <clears throat> excuse me, on TV One every morning. So there's a lot of good uh, information. There's, so there's some good shows, but a lot of this stuff is nonsense. Now, if you look at this article here from BlackAmericaWeb.com, BlackAmericaWeb.com, this is from June 14th, 2012. This is about a new study, and the name of this article was TV Kills Black Boys' Self-Esteem. TV kills black boys' self-esteem. Read this article. A new precise and exhaustive, exhaustive year-long study finds that watching television regularly distorts and ultimately destroys the self-esteem of young black males who often find themselves comparing one another to the characters they view on air, leaving them feeling trapped and as if there are very few positive life paths they can aspire to. Okay. Watching television regularly, dest regularly distorts and ultimately destroys the self-esteem of young black males who often find themselves comparing one another to the characters they view on air, leaving them feeling trapped and as if there are very few positive uh, life paths they can aspire to. Very few positive life paths they can aspire to, Okay. So check out that article, and they have a link to the study in that article also, all right? Now, this is very important. This was a study. This was a joint study done by Harvard University and University of Pittsburgh. Harvard University, Harvard, Harvard University, and University of Pittsburgh. They wrote about this. AfricanGlobe.net had an article about this. Other news outlets had an article about this also. This is from January 1st, 2013. Black teens with racial pride do better in school. Black teens with racial pride do better in school. 
African-American teenagers perform better academically when their parents instill in them a sense of racial pride. Okay. A new study by the University of Pittsburgh and Harvard University shows that when parents use racial socialization, racial socialization, such as talking to their children or engaging in activities that promote feelings of racial knowledge, pride, and connection, it offsets racial discrimination's potentially negative impact on students' academic development. Let's break this down, okay? When parents use racial socialization, such as talking to their children or engaging in activities that promote feelings of racial knowledge, pride, and connection. It could be taking them to um, African-American History Month celebrations, Black History Month celebrations, Kwanzaa celebrations, going to the African-American History Museum, going to, going to uh, uh, lectures, uh, presentations about our history, going to see documentaries, okay? All of these things. When parents use racial socialization, such as talking to their children about our history, uh, uh, about our culture, uh, talking about the, the beauty of Africanness, the beauty of blackness, etc., our ingenuity, our inventors, our skin complexion, or engaging in activities that promote feelings of racial knowledge, pr racial pride, and connection to African history, to African culture. This offsets discrimination's potentially negative impact on students' academic development. But not only that, it's going to have a positive impact on them throughout their life when they go out into the real world. Well, if this is the case, why do you have people telling African Americans to forget about your history, get over slavery, don't talk about that, in March, around the time of St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, you have these memes and you have this false narrative being pushed by white supremacists saying that the Irish were slaves in America also and that you don't hear them talking, complaining about slavery. So African-Americans should stop. First of all, Irish were not slaves. Irish were indentured servants. Irish were not slaves. Okay. And there's been numerous work dealing with this. New York Times had a big article debunking this myth. All right. So you don't hear Jews saying uh, we should forget the Holocaust and don't talk about the Holocaust and things like this. You know, every ethnic group in America, for the most part, have their history and culture intact, and they use it to fight for scarce wealth, power, resources. And they hold on to that culture. Their culture and history gives them a sense of who they are. It binds them together, okay? And they build memorials dealing with their history. They have museums to document their history. They have uh, uh, documentaries. They even have a channel dedicated to their history called the History Channel. You have the American Heroes channels. Europeans create institutions to document their history, and other people do the same thing. Okay, But when it comes to us, you have people telling us to forget about all that. No, we, hold on. We were the first people on the face of the earth. Our history is older than anybody else's. Maybe that's why you want us to forget it. Maybe that's why you want us to forget it, okay? So we have to understand how all this is interconnected and interrelated. And this at the root, and, 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 and being stripped of that history and culture leads to the self-hatred that will cause 
a multimillionaire like Gilbert Arenas, who has fame, fortune, and a following, to attack a high-profile African-American sister like Lapita Nyong'o. All right, so read that article that I wrote. Lapita Nyong'o explains why she prayed to God to make her light skin. Why she prayed to God to make her light skin. Okay, you can once again you can read all of my articles at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All right. Okay, and um, if you have a question or comment, give us a call nine one four three three eight thirteen seventy five. 914-338-1375. Press the number one key to put you in queue so we could bring you on the air. Press the number one key to put you in queue so we could bring you on the air. We're going to try to get to all these uh, topics tonight and things that I can't get to tonight. Uh, we'll deal with Sunday night on my radio show, the African History Network show on 9, 10 a.m., the Superstation, the voice of Detroit. We'll deal with some of this there also. I may have to do a subsequent broadcast um, to deal with some of these topics because these are topics I haven't been able to, I've been so busy, haven't been able to get to these topics. We're going to go to the phone lines in just a minute. 914-338-1375 is the call-in number. If you have a question or comment, once again, we'll post it, uh, post it again. 914-338-1375. Press the number one key if you have a question or comment. Also, um, I want to remind you, so at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, we have the, um, uh, at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, we have the uh, Black Friday documentaries. I'm in both of these from director Rick Mathis. Black Friday, the first one, Black Friday, with Legacy Will You Leave? We just got some more in. Black Friday, with Legacy Will You Leave? And Black Friday, the remix, What Legacy Are You Building? Okay. So these documentaries deal with, um, Number one, strategies to recycle our $1.3 trillion economy. Strategies to recycle our $1.3 trillion economy. They also deal with strategies to um, create intergenerational wealth for our children. So we're passing on assets as opposed to liabilities. And they also deal with understanding where our concepts of money come from, where our concepts of money come from. Because oftentimes, the way our parents think about money influences the way we think about money, whether it's positive or negative. Okay. And you see me with my black Friday, uh, you see me with my black Friday, uh, t-shirt on also. Okay. And then we have the, um, elementary genocide documentaries as well. Then with the school to prison pipeline from dire uh, director Raheem Shabazz, elementary genocide one and two. Uh, Oh, now, Oh, also the black Friday documentaries. Who's in here? Dr. Claude Anderson, Dr. Umar Johnson, uh, Tony Browder, Dr. George Frazier, uh, hip-hop artist David Banner, Hill Harper, Malcolm Jamal Warner, Chuck D. Uh, from Public Enemy, Ice-T, uh, Dr. Boyce Watkins, ton of people in uh, the Black Friday documentaries. And then in uh, Elementary Genocide 1 and 2, this deals with the school-to-prison pipeline, deals with education, the miseducation of our children, how to correct that. Yeah, Dr. Umar Johnson, Dr. Boyce Watkins, uh, Dr. Steve Perry. You got uh, hip hop artist Killer Mike. A lot of people in these also. Um, so these are available at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. And um, for each copy of any of the documentaries there that you purchase, any any of these uh, that you purchase, as well as the Hidden Color documentaries, uh, you'll get one of my DVD presentations free also. Okay. AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We have bundle packs there as well. Look out for me in Black Friday 
uh, part two, uh, the global African legacy uh, coming out October 13th, 2017. And look out for me in elementary genocide part three, that date that uh, comes out August 22nd, 2017. I'm in there with Professor Kaba Hiawatha Kamene, who we had on the show last Thursday, one of my teachers, formerly known as Booker T. Coleman, and also Professor James Small, another one of my teachers as well, okay? All right, so um, let's go to the phone lines here. Let's see here. James Small. Okay, okay, one of my okay call it. Okay. Call All right, so. seven area code. If you have a question or comment, uh, uh, just listen to the show. And, and turn, turn 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 the radio down or the computer down um, so we can hear it in the background. Call in the eight five seven area code. You have a question or comment, or just listen to the show. And then turn 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 the radio down or the computer. Call in the eight five seven area code. You have a question or comment, or just listen to the show. You have a question or comment, or just listen to the show. Okay, I guess I guess it's just listening. Okay. All right. So, um, how's everybody doing on Facebook? Let's see here. Uh, Shanine, and let's see, monitoring your comments here also. Let's see what we have. Shanine, how you doing? Hotep. Felicia, Shirley in Philadelphia. Um, Olive said uh, Gilbert mentioned Lapita name to be relevant, but this is not the first time he attacked her. <clears throat> we talked about that. This is not the first time he attacked her. Um Laura said, I was dark like my dad and sister and brother, were fair like my mom. He taught me to love my color. Uh, Karen Armstrong, how you doing, Karen? Anderson, uh, Anderson Angelita said, Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, Ernestine said, deal with the psychology of it. it uh, so true. Um, okay, Laura said, I had more trouble growing up with fair-skinned uh, black folks than uh, than whites. I love my blackness and our dark men and know I'm beautiful. Okay, Erica Watson, how you doing, Erica? All right, so share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in also, okay? All right, so next topic I want to get to is uh, Emmett Till is uh, back in the news again, right? This past Tuesday, um, July 25th, would have been the 76th birthday of Emmett Till. The 76th birthday of uh, Emmett Till, okay? And uh, Emmett Till was 14 years old when he was killed in Money, Mississippi, August 25th, 1955, the morning of August 25th, 1955. So uh, we're going to um, deal with some of the history of Emmett Till, give you the background story, and then uh, talk about the article from theroot.com from uh, Tuesday, July 25th by Brianna Edwards. Uh, today would have been Emmett Till's 76th birthday if a white woman didn't lie on him. Today would have been Emmett Till's 76th birthday uh, if a white woman didn't lie on him. Okay, very, very, very good article here also. All right, so um, it, when we look at the history of Emmett Till, right, BlackPass.org has a good article about this. So Emmett Till was a 14-year-old African-American boy. Uh, he was tortured and killed in Money, Mississippi, okay, uh, after allegedly insulting a white woman, all right? Now, Emmett Till was from Chicago, 
okay? And he lived with his mother, Mamie Till. Uh, his father, Louis Till, died while serving in the U.S. Army in Italy in 1945, okay? Emmett Till goes down to Money, Mississippi in the summer of 1955 to go visit his 64-year-old great-uncle, Mose Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, and, and, and the family, Mose Wright, okay? So you have rampant segregation going on in Mississippi at the time, all right? Rampant segregation going on in Mississippi at the time, all right? And uh, please share this broadcast on your Facebook page. Um, invite your friends to tune in also, okay? Um, so Emmett Till isn't used to this. He's from Chicago. Okay, he isn't used to this. So before he leaves, his mother, Mamie Till, um, tells him to uh, follow Southern customs and mind his manners. Uh, but having grown up in a northern city like Chicago, Emmett Till was unaware of the legacy of lynching and the rigid social caste system in the South. Okay. So on August 24th, 1955, while at a local grocery store with his cousins, Emmett Till reportedly left the store whistling at the white female clerk. Her name was Carolyn Bryant, okay? And she was part owner of the store, all right? She owned the store with her husband, Roy Bryant, all right? Um, and uh, he, he was 24 years old at the time. So soon after this incident, Roy Bryant and his half-brother, J.W. Millam, appeared at Mose Wright's cabin around 2.30 a.m., okay, 2.30 a.m., which would have been the next morning, August 25th, 1955. So the armed men kidnapped uh, uh, Emmett Till, and they said they wanted to talk to the boy, okay, who was, at, who was at that store, and they said they just wanted to talk to him. If you watch Eyes on the Prize, in the first chapter of Eyes on the Prize, they deal with the killing of Emmett Till. Because this killing gained international attention, international media attention. The uh, funeral of Emmett Till gained international media attention also. And Jet Magazine put the picture of Emmett Till laying in the open casket. They put that on the cover of Jet Magazine so people could see what was done to Emmett Till also. Okay? So these two armed white supremacists, uh, they slashed out one of Emmett Till's eyes and tied a 100-pound cotton gin fan around his neck with barbed wire. And Emmett Till was severely beaten and shot in the head and thrown into the Tallahatchie River, okay? Uh, now, some sources say it's 70 or 75-pound cotton gin, okay, uh, around, around his neck, all right? Now, two fishermen found Emmett Till's mutilated and unrecognizable corpse three days later. Uh, Mamie Till, his mother, who later uh, remarries and, is and was known as Mamie Till Bradley, um, she immediately requested her son's bloated, mutilated body be returned to Chicago and displayed in the open casket, uh, open casket funeral at Robert's Temple Church of God in Christ. And she said, quote, I wanted the world to see what they did to my son. I wanted the world to see what they did to my son. This is why they had an open casket funeral. OK, so there's tens of thousands of people lined up to view the body at the at the mortuary and over 50,000 mourners attended the funeral services days later. Now, this 
this this killing of Emmett Till gained international attention. All right. Definitely national attention, but also international attention. Okay. Now, Emmett Till's murder symbolized for many African-Americans the inherent racism and disparity of justice they continue to face in the aftermath of World War II. Because a lot of African-Americans, a lot of African-American men who served in World War II, when they come back home, World War II ends in 1945. When they come back home, they're saying, look, we're not going to take the same segregation or racism and discrimination that we dealt with before we went to the war. We, they said we fought for this country. We shed our blood for this country. Some of us died, and we want full citizenship right now. We want all of our rights right now, okay? And these are going to be some things that precipitate the um, civil rights movement, which many people uh, start. Uh, many people start the modern day civil rights movement with the Montgomery bus boycott, December fifth, nineteen fifty five. But some people started with the killing of Emmett Till and what in the trial of uh, Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam after the killing of Emmett Till. So some people started with Emmett Till in 1955, the modern day civil rights movement. All right. So because of the media and particularly the coverage by African-American press, because African-American press was crucial to covering the killing of Emmett Till and then also the trial as well. The murder of Emmett Till gained national and international attention that prompted public disclosure on segregation, racial violence, and social, political, and economic equality. So this caused a problem for America on the international scene that wants to chastise other governments for human rights violations, but you have these human rights violations going on in the land of the free and the home of the brave. You have rampant segregation going on in the South. Now, this is also the year after Brown versus Board of Education, Supreme Court decision in 1954. And then right after the Brown versus Board of Education, Supreme Court decision, you're going to have the White Citizens Council that's created in Mississippi in 1954 as a direct backlash to that because they want to keep segregation in place. And the White Citizens Council is going to be made up of business or white businessmen, white landowners, plantation owners, bankers, politicians, things like this. These are going to be like the Ku Klux Klan without the sheets. And they have a lot of political power. They're going to get people elected to political office. And in Mississippi, the White Citizens Council, so, so the White Citizens Council spreads all throughout Mississippi and it spreads all throughout the South also. Okay? So the White Citizens Council helps Ross Barnett become elected as governor of Mississippi. And then when Megar Evers is shot and killed by uh, Byron Della Beckwith, June 12, 1963, in Jackson, Mississippi, right outside of his, right outside of Megar Evers' house, he's shot in the back by Byron Della Beckwith, who was a member of the White Citizens Council of Mississippi. There were two trials for Byron Della Beckwith initially, and they were mistrials. At one of those trials, Ross Barnett, the governor of Mississippi, who was put in office partially by the White Citizens Council, is seen shaking hands of Byron Della Beckwith after one of the mistrials, and he's shaking hands with him and smiling. And Byron Della Beckwith was a member of the White Citizens Council also. When you look at the Montgomery bus boycott, right, the Montgomery bus boycott, what ended it was not the 
were in the segregation on the buses was not the Montgomery bus boycott, which lasted 381 days from December 5th, 1955 to December 20th, 1956. It was not the bus boycott. It was the lawsuit of Browder versus Gale filed February 1st, 1956 by attorney Fred Gray that goes all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. It was that lawsuit that ended segregation on the buses because the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that segregation on the buses was unconstitutional. And I've written articles about this. You can read my articles at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. I've written articles that document this, okay? And also I have a a two-hour presentation, two-hour lecture that I did called The Distortion of the Legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The Revolutionary Would Not Be Televised. The distortion of the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the revolutionary, will not be televised, okay? And uh, you can order all my lectures. I have 35 of my DVD lectures at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, our website, okay? And keep in mind, this is some of the information I deal with in the online course that I teach, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, What They Didn't Teach You in School. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, What They Didn't Teach You in School. This is a 12-hour, six-week online course that I teach. We normally meet on Friday, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can tune in from around the world. All the sessions are recorded, so if you miss anything, you can go back and watch it over and over again. So we just posted a link here on our Facebook fan page uh, on the thread. It's also on our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, on the homepage. As soon as you register, you can watch the first four classes, and there's 12 hours of bonus content. The course is only $40, okay? So um, when you look at the plaintiffs in the case, right? Browder versus Gale. The plaintiffs in the case are Aurelia S. Browder, Claudette Colvin, who nine months before uh, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus. Uh, on the bus, also, you have Mary Louise, Mary Louise Smith and Susie McDonald. You have four African American women who were the plaintiffs in this landmark Supreme Court case. Who was the who was the defendant? Gale, G A. Y-L-E, William A. Gale, who was the mayor of Montgomery, Alabama at the time, okay? William A. Gale, who was the governor, uh, who was the mayor of Montgomery, Alabama at the time, okay? Well, in January of 1956, uh, uh, Mayor, Mayor William Gale joins the White Citizens Council. Okay, he joins the White Citizens Council and he encourages um, he he encourages uh, other people, other white people in Montgomery, Alabama to join the White Citizens Council. Also, he openly encourages other white people in Montgomery, Alabama to join the White Citizens Council as well. Okay. So you gotta you gotta understand this history and, and 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 understand what they were facing, what they were dealing with. A lot of our people talk about what they would have done back then and all that stuff if they would have been there. Most of them ain't even doing that stuff today. All the opposition we're dealing with today, most of those people who say today what they would have done back then ain't even doing that today. So um all right, so when you do, so you have um, Emmett Till in Mississippi, who's killed August twenty fifth, nineteen fifty five. 
You have Megger Evers, who's killed in Mississippi, June 12, 1963. But also you have Fannie Lou Hamer coming out of Mississippi as well. Okay? Freedom fighter Fannie Lou Hamer also. Okay, so because of the when we look at Emmett Till and in the in the of the trial of the, the two white men who killed Emmett Till, Roy Bryant and J.W. Miller. Um, because of the media, and particularly the coverage from African-American media, African-American press, the murder gained national and international attention that prompted public discourse on segregation, okay, racial violence, and social, political, and economic uh, equality also, all right? So in September of 1955, uh, Mamie Till, uh, Emmett Till's mother, came to Mississippi for the trial under heavy protection from advisors and relatives, all right? And when you watch uh, Eyes on the Prize, they talk about how the uh, courtroom was segregated. They had the, they had the um, African-American press on one side of the room, they had the white press on the other side of the room, okay, as well. It was an all-white jury also. So a lot of African-Americans who were from the north and hadn't been to Mississippi before, this, this, it was a total culture shock to them, okay, to see this. So you're going to have um, uh, the two white men. They're going to be uh, found not guilty, of course, all-white jury, all right? And you have a number of prominent outside observers who attended uh, the trial. You're going to have uh, Michigan Congressman Charles Diggs Jr., who's a legend here in, in Detroit, in the state of Michigan. Um, Mamie Till and Mose Wright testified in court. Emmett Till's, uh, Emmett Till's great uncle, Mose Wright, they testified in court. And the prosecutor, I'm sorry, the um the defense for the two white men tried to dis, tried to discredit Mamie Till, and they said that Mamie Till took out an insurance policy on Emmett Till and purposely sent him to Mississippi to be killed. And they said that the body of Emmett Till that was found was not actually Emmett Till. But they said it was a cadaver that was planted by the NAACP. This is what the defense argued. Okay? And you have to understand the NAACP was very powerful in the South. They were hated by white supremacists. You could be, you could be fired from your job for being a member of the NAACP. They were hated by the white citizens council, by the segregationists, by the white supremacists. Okay? Let me repeat what happened. The, the defense for J.W. Millam and Roy Bryant, the two white men who killed Emmett Till, they argued that Emmett Till's mother took out an insurance policy on Emmett Till and purposely sent him to uh, Mississippi to be killed, and they argued that the body of Emmett Till that was found was not actually Emmett Till, but it was actually a cadaver that was planted by the NAACP. This is their argument. 
Now, at this time, historically, no jury in the state of Mississippi had ever convicted a white person for killing an African-American person if the crime involved sexual aggressions towards a white woman. The all-white, all-male jury deliberated for only 67 minutes after acquitting the two men. Four months later, uh, JW, uh, uh, Roy Bryan and J.W. Millam admitted to murdering Emmett Till to journalist William Bradford Huey for an article for Look Magazine. And they received $4,000 for their interview, and they admitted to killing Emmett Till. In the interview, after they were acquitted for his, for his murder. But because of double jeopardy, right, because of double jeopardy, they could not be tried. They could not be tried again. So they got away with it. So many grassroots and local activists thereafter saw Emmett Till's murder and trial as a call to action that helped galvanize the modern day civil rights movement. Okay, so you had a development earlier in the year. And uh, we talked about this. Uh, on the African History Network show, um, you had, uh, let's see, uh, Vanity Fair magazine had an article January 26, 2017, how author Timothy Tyson found the woman at the center of the Emmett Till case, how author Timothy Tyson found the woman at the center of the Emmett Till case, okay? So you had um, Carolyn Bryant, who remarried, and she uh, admitted to you. So you have a new book coming out called um, The Blood of Emmett Till, The Blood of Emmett Till. OK. And. The author of the book um, did an interview with her uh, 10 years prior. And she she admitted that um, part of her testimony she made up. OK. Um in a new book, The Blood of Emmett Till, um, she she admits that part of her let's see, she admits part of her testimony was made up. She said that part's not true. She told Timothy Tyson about her claim that Emmett Till had made verbal and physical advances on her. Okay, she lied about this in uh, in her testimony. Um, Emmett Till, uh, one of his uh, cousins. Said that he said to the woman, "Bye, baby." When when uh, he was leaving the store, "Bye, baby," and he whistled at her. Okay, so that part is true, but the part of her of him um, um, making verbal and physical, uh, um, uh, being verbally abusive and, and making a physical advance to her, that that part was a lie. Okay, as for the rest of what happened that evening in the country store, she said she couldn't remember. Okay, and that was at the time of the interview. All right, but she but she admitted that part of her testimony was a lie. Okay, and uh, it appears this is a part of the lie she told her husband about what happened. Also, now in in this article from um, Vanity Fair, check out this article once again. How Arthur Timothy Tyson found the woman. At the center of the Emmett Till case. This is from January 26, 2017. Okay. Um, on the on the witness stand, uh, Carolyn Bryant uh, had asserted that Emmett Till grabbed her and verbally threatened her. 
she said that while she was unable to utter the un, quote unquote unprintable word that he had used, okay, as one of the as one of the defense lawyers put it, quote, he said uh, he had done something with white women before, okay. This is what she said. Then she added, I was just scared to death, um, quote unquote, I was just scared to death. A version of her damning allegation was also made by the defendant's lawyers to reporters. The jury did not hear Carolyn's words because the judge had dismissed them from the courtroom, had dismissed the uh, jurors from the courtroom while she spoke, ruling that her testimony was not relevant to the actual murder. But the court spectators heard her and her testimony was put on the record because the defense wanted her words as evidence in a possible appeal in the event that the defendants were convicted. Okay, but it appears this is what this is the story that she also told her husband, which then prompted he and his brother-in-law to go kidnap Emmett Till and ultimately kill him. Now, when you watch Eyes on the Prize, they have, uh, if I remember correctly, in Eyes on the Prize, they have an interview with, oh, they interviewed um, Hugh, uh, Huey, what's his name? Uh, William Huey, Huey, okay? Um, the reporter who did the interview for Look Magazine, William Bradford Huey, they interviewed him in Eyes on the Prize. And he said that one of the one of the guys said that when they had Emmett Till in the back seat of the car, they were just going to rough him up, beat him, what have you. They didn't plan to kill him. But Emmett Till said something. Um, I think something about him having a white girlfriend up in Chicago or something. He said something. And then that prompted them to kill Emmett Till. Okay. Watch eyes on the prize. Watch eyes on the prize. Very, very important. Um, very, very important uh, piece of work there. Eyes on the prize. Excellent document. They have some clips on YouTube also. They have some clips of eyes on the prize on YouTube. Okay. So this was a big story in January, 2017 to come to find out after all these years, right? Um, Carolyn Bryant lied about some of her testimony and the most damaging testimony she lied about because Emmett Till did not uh, verbally abuse her and did not grab her. That was a lie that was made up. Okay. And then you also have the justice department debating about whether to reopen the uh, Emmett Till murder case as well. Uh, NBCnews.com has an article about that. Justice Department considering reopening Emmett Till murder case. Justice Department uh, considering uh, reopening Emmett Till murder case, family says. Okay. You can research that. That's from NBCnews.com. Um, the Root.com has an article from um, January 27th. Woman Woman who calls Emmett Till's death admits to lying. Woman who calls Emmett Till's woman who calls Emmett Till's death admits to lying. And in the article with Vanity Fair, uh, Carolyn Bryant said, 
quote, nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. Nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. Okay. All right. So now you have uh, this past Tuesday was the birthday would have been the 76th birthday of Emmett Till if this white woman hadn't lied on him. So the root.com has an article from Brianna Edwards. Today would have been Emmett Till's 76th birthday if a white woman didn't lie on him. Okay. This is from um, July 25th, 2017. July 25th, 2017. And um, in the article, um, she talks about how uh, she talks about the the revelation that came out earlier this year. Uh, um, she, uh, Carolyn Bryant is now 82 years old, and she confessed 10 years ago to author Timothy Tyson, a Duke University senior research scholar who was working on the book, The Blood of Emmett Till. She, she confessed that um, part of her testimony was a lie, okay? And um, she, they also talk about here in the article that um, – uh, the Justice Department has um, um, is kicking around the idea of uh, reopening the case. We know the family of Emmett Till has met uh, with the Justice Department recently with Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and that Attorney General Jeff Sessions expressed his support for pursuing and prosecuting those involved, which is a shock because he's a Southern segregationist from Alabama. However, most African-Americans are skeptical about, about Jeff Sessions' willingness to, willingness to truly dig into the old case. Okay. Um, so check out this article also from um, theroot.com, uh, dealing with the uh, 76th birthday of Emmett Till as well. Okay. Um, and this is, you know, a real tragedy, but it's a piece of our history and we really need to we really need to study this because this was really the beginnings of the modern day civil rights movement. Okay, really the beginnings of the modern day civil rights movement, the killing of uh, Emmett Till and what happened after that. And when when you look at um, um, Megra Evers, right? People don't understand. One of the things the NAACP did was investigations into killings and uh, attacks on African Americans and gather evidence, gather evidence uh, for the authorities, etc. So when we look at Megra Evers, uh, with the aid of NAACP Mississippi Field Secretary Megra Evers and other black activists, what they did was they went and sought out witnesses involved in who had knowledge of what happened at the store knowledge of uh you know surrounding the killing of Emmett Till, okay, and they gathered this information um uh to help the prosecution in the case, okay? And and, and because of them they were able to gather this information and prosecution produced compelling evidence. Okay. This is something that the NAACP was involved in. And 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 Megra Evers was the field secretary for the NAACP in Mississippi. One of the things he did was help African Americans register to vote in Mississippi because the overwhelming majority of them were not registered to vote because you could be fired for your job just for registering to vote in Mississippi back at that time. When you study uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, Fannie Lou Hamer 
her family, she was the youngest of 20 children, if I remember correctly, youngest of either 19 or 20 children. Her family were sharecroppers in Mississippi. And when she registered to vote, she got fired from her job on the plantation, not because she voted, but because she registered to vote. This is what can happen to you just for registering to vote in Mississippi back at that time, back in the 1960s, back in 1950s. This is is before the Voting Rights Act of 1965, okay? So this, uh, you know, we really, really need to study the um, civil rights movement. A lot of people think they know about it. Most people really don't understand the civil rights movement and then also don't understand the transition of Dr. King from civil rights to human rights. Because after the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65, he transitions from 66 to 68 from civil rights to human rights. And what he was trying to do is get African-Americans in the South to the level that they were in the North and then go from civil rights to human rights. Because in the South, in many ways, they were far behind those in the North, even though those in the North were still dealing with uh, segregation. But it was segregation to a lesser extent. You didn't have the colored only signs for the most part, the white signs, colored only signs, things like this. But just here in Detroit, Detroit, they were dealing with rapid segregation here in Detroit. You would have restrictive covenants across the country. You have things like restrictive covenants, which were written into the deeds of, 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 of white homeowners that said they could not sell the house or rent the house to African-Americans. You had uh, housing discrimination that locked African-Americans out of buying homes in certain areas and also getting loans to buy homes. So you, the, uh, you, you see this with the Federal Housing Administration, which was created in 1934. So all this deals with politics and deals with government policies that help create the segregation, help create ghettos, and help maldistribute wealth and resources into the hands of, uh, of Europeans, okay? I encourage people to read the book, uh, How White Folks Got So Rich, The Untold Story of American White Supremacy. How White Folks Got So Rich, The Untold Story of American White Supremacy. I encourage people to read that book. And then also, uh, that's from uh, the Nation of Islam Research Group. You can go to NOI. Uh, rg.org, I think it is uh, Nation of Islam Research Group, or go to finalcall.com. Finalcall.com, you could probably get it there also. And then also read the four part uh, article, um, four part series they have at finalcall.com called Hard Work or Hardly Working, How White Folks Got So Rich. Hard Work or Hardly Working, How White Folks Got So Rich. Okay. Uh, and that is an overview of that book as well. Okay. All right. So uh, if you have a question or comment, give us a call, 914-338-1375. Press the number one key to put you in queue so we can bring you on the air, 914-338-1375. Press the number one key to put you in queue so we can bring you on the air. Uh, You listen to to the African History Network show. Uh, We're broadcasting on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We're also broadcasting on Facebook Live or Facebook fan page, the African History Network, the African History Network. If you like this type of information, you can register for our online course that I teach, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, What They Didn't Teach You in School, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, What They Didn't Teach You in School. This is a 12-hour, six-week online course that I teach. And um, 
This deals with uh, thousands of years of history. We deal with history leading up to the transatlantic slave trade to better understand it. Uh, you can also go to AfricanHistoryNetwork.com as well and register for that also. And um, we deal with uh, ancient Egypt. We deal with the 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors. We deal with all that type of information. Uh, we deal with um, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of history in the class. We deal with the, uh, Christopher Columbus and the role that Christopher Columbus played in the transatlantic slave trade. When we study our history, we can't start. We can when we study transatlantic slave trade. We can't start in the 1619 August 2016-19. We know that anniversary is coming up soon, August 2016-19. Uh, a lot of people think that African people first came to this land. At that at that time, no, that's not true. We've been here at least fifty one thousand seven hundred years. We've been here in, in the land we call the United States of America. We've been here at least fifty one thousand seven hundred years. And when you study the work from uh, Dr. David M. Hotep, who I've interviewed a number of times, and uh, also you know all our these radio shows, we have them podcasted. So if you go to AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, click on the link on the homepage. Um, Listen to the podcast. Uh, listen to the podcast. Um, we have um, almost 800 uh, archive episodes. Okay, almost 800 archive episodes. So you can check those out there. But uh, you can listen to the interviews I've done with Dr. David M. Hotep, author of the book uh, "The First Americans Were Africans: Documented Evidence." The first Americans were Africans: Documented Evidence. Okay, and here's Dr. David M. Hotep here. So his groundbreaking book came out in 2011. And in his book, he deals with a African presence in this country going back at least 51,700 years. And he deals with the discovery from Dr. Albert Goodyear. Okay, so Dr. Albert Goodyear in 2004, who was an archaeologist at the uh, University of South Carolina, Dr. Albert Goodyear uh, made a discovery in Allendale County, South Carolina, and they found uh, uh uh, evidence, overwhelming evidence of an African presence here. So uh, this deals with the Khoisan, who have the oldest DNA on the planet, okay, the Khoisan, uh, coming from southern Africa, also called the uh, Khoi Khoi. Uh, they are the uh, ancestors to the Ainu and the Twa. But they found artifacts, architecture, campsites, carvings, Egyptian writings, footprints and lava, genetic M174D haploid groups, uh, dealing with DNA and genetics, linguistics, paintings, skulls, skeletons, structures, and tools. They found uh, 14 different disciplines fairly documenting an African presence in this country we call the United States of America going back at least 51,700 years ago. Okay, And then if you look at the article from um, uh, ScienceDaily.com, ScienceDaily.com, from uh, November 18, 2004. November 18, 2004, called New Evidence Puts Man in North America 50,000 Years Ago. New Evidence Puts Man in North America 50,000 Years Ago. Now, this is from 13 years ago, okay? This deals with Dr. Albert, Albert Goodyear's groundbreaking archaeological discovery that at the time flipped the archaeological world upside down. And one of the things we do with in, in the course is we deal with with archaeological discoveries, including some of the recent archaeological discoveries, because these discoveries are happening all the time. And mainstream media is reporting on them because I show you articles from mainstream media. Okay? One of the most recent archaeological discoveries was revealed April 26, 2017, of mastodon skeletons 
uh, a mastodon skeleton, which is a prehistoric animal, a uh, precursor to the uh, elephant. Mastodon skeleton found in San Diego that paleontologists are saying date back, uh, date, dates back 130,000 years ago. And they said that the, that, that it was the, the skeleton was smashed with stone tools, okay? And they're saying it was smashed with stone tools by humans. Now, if this is true, what this does is this puts a human presence in North America over 100,000 years before uh, modern archaeology tells us humans were here. Because the oldest um, human site that modern archaeologists cites here in North America is the Clovis culture uh, site from New Mexico that dates back about 13,000 years ago. But you have many of our scholars like Dr. David M. Hotep, Renoka Rashidi, Dr. Charles Finch, and others who are saying modern man, homo sapiens, modern man is not 75,000 or 100,000 years old, but at least 300,000 years old. Okay, so if this is true with a human presence in North America going back 130,000 years ago, this would fall in line with what many of our scholars have been saying. Then in Morocco, in early June of 2017, they, they found skeletons of modern man, Homo sapiens. Now, we're Homo sapiens sapiens, but still under the classification of Homo sapiens, which is modern man. They found skeletons of modern man in Morocco that they say date back 300,000 to 350,000 years ago, which falls in line with what Dr. David Imhotep and other scholars have been saying. And you listen to my interviews with them, we deal with this. It falls in line with that. The discovery in Morocco flipped the archaeological world upside down. The reason why is because the oldest, the oldest fossil of modern man that archaeology has dates back 195,000 years ago in Ethiopia, found in Ethiopia. This is of Homo sapiens. This is not talking about Lucy, who Dr. Yosef Ben Yakinen called Dinknesh, okay? The, the, the remains of Lucy is an older form of humans called Australopithecus afarensis, which dates back approximately 3.2 million years ago. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about modern man, okay? The oldest human fossils of modern man date back 195,000 years ago in Ethiopia. Well, the ones in Morocco date back over 100,000 years before that. So when these discoveries come out, they keep having to push dates back. And you, if you listen to me, you listen to my presentation, you see my lectures, I talk about how the deeper they dig, the blacker the planet gets, the more research they do, the older we get. The deeper they dig, the blacker the planet gets, the more research they do, the older we get. Okay? So Juvenile had a song years ago called Back That Thing Up. And when these archaeological discoveries come out, they keep having to back that thing up. They keep having to back these dates up, okay? And, and the deeper they dig, the blacker the planet gets, the more research they do, the older we get. So if you look at this article from ScienceDaily.com from November 18, 2004, 13 years ago, new evidence puts man in North America 50,000 years ago. It says, a synopsis of the article says radiocarbon tests of carbonized plant remains 
where artifacts were unearthed last May along the Savannah River in Allendale County by University of South Carolina archaeologist Dr. Albert Goodyear indicate that the sediments containing these artifacts are at least at least 50,000 years old, meaning that humans inhabited North America long before the last ice age. Well, this flips the archaeological world upside down. They've been trying to discredit this uh, discovery for years, but then you have other archaeological discoveries that fall that that you know fall in line with this and possibly push this date back even further. Okay, so there is a concerted effort to try to suppress this type of information because what you're dealing with is is the fact that African people were here in the land we call the United States of America before Native Americans came into existence. African people were here in the land we call the United States of America before Native Americans came into existence because the people who we call Native Americans are the offspring of an intermixing of Africans who had been here for tens of thousands of years and Native American Africans who've been here for tens of thousands of years and Asians who come here around 3000 BC and the Africans and Asians intermix and their offspring are who we call Native Americans. Their offspring, their offspring are who we call Native Americans. Okay. So this is, this is what you're dealing with. And then when, when European settlers come to this land, many of the indigenous African groups or African nations, a lot of them get reclassified as Native Americans. So if you don't understand this history, you don't know what you're looking for or what you're looking at. Okay? And, and, and so there were millions of African people who were already here before the transatlantic slave trade started. I'm not saying the transatlantic slave trade didn't happen. I'm saying it didn't happen the way we've been taught that it happened. It didn't, it didn't happen the way we've been taught that it happened. Okay. The transatlantic slave trade happened, but it didn't happen the way we have been taught that it happened. So you have to understand this history because once again, what you do for yourself, what you do to yourself and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. You have a different, you have a different outlook on life and uh, outlook on you and people who look like you. When you understand that this was your land stolen away from you, as opposed to thinking you are a guest in this land. No, we're not a guest in this land. This was our land. We were here first. This was our land stolen from us. So then that changes how we teach our history. That changes how we teach our children. That is ultimately going to change how this history is taught in the schools. That's ultimately going to change how this history is taught in the schools because truth trust, the truth crushed to the earth rises again. Okay. And, 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 and ultimately the truth comes out. So this is what we're dealing with. Okay. 914-338-1375 is the call in number. If you have a question or comment, press the number one key to put you in queue. Uh, if you have a, if you want to go on the air, um, and you can listen by phone also, the same number, 914-338-1375, 914-338-1375.
But this is some of the type of information we, we deal with in our online course, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. This is a 12-hour, six-week online course. We do it on Fridays, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And um, all the sessions are recorded. If you miss anything, you can go back and watch it over and over again. As soon as you register, you can watch the first four sessions. And then also, uh, we have 12 hours of bonus content also, okay? Uh, so it's a ton of information in the online course. The course is only $40, all right? So you can register for that. Okay, let's continue. So uh, we're coming up on the break here. When we come back, we're going to deal with this story about game of the, the creators of Games of Thrones, the Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones. The creators have come up with a brilliant idea to have a new series called Confederate that looks at what would America be like if the Civil War, uh, if the South won the Civil War? What would it look like if the South won the Civil War and slavery still existed? What would it look like if the South won the Civil War and slavery still existed? Now, you want to do something like this in the era of Donald Trump, and you have a rampant rise of white supremacy. White supremacy already existed, but no, it's on steroids now. It's on steroids. It's more out in the open. It's more accepted. Which and, and and if you study the Southern Poverty Law Center, you've seen a huge increase in the number of hate crimes directed towards African Americans, Hispanics, Muslims, Arabs, things like this. Even those of the Sikh faith, S-I-K-H, who people mistake for Arabs. Okay. And you want to have a uh, a, a weekly TV show about this. Not a documentary, a weekly TV show. But you can't just blame these two white uh, creators, um, David Benioff and D.B. Wise, because you have two African-American producers who are involved in this nonsense also, Nichelle Tramble Spellman and Malcolm Spellman. Okay, so we'll deal with this on the other side of the break. Uh, those on Facebook, we're about to stop broadcasting. Uh, we're going to have a new broadcast starting up, so stay tuned. This is to the African History Network show. Blog Talk Radio, we'll be back in a few minutes. Okay, so we're still on Blog Talk. Stand by. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. And uh, visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We have um, uh, all of my DVD lectures there, and also we have the documentaries, um, Black Friday, what legacy will you leave? We have the Black Friday documentaries, and we have the um, um, let's see, we have the Black Friday documentaries and uh, Elementary Genocide also. Black Friday documentaries and Elementary Genocide as well. Okay, all right. So uh, we'll be back in a few minutes here. Stand by. We'll be back in a few minutes. Uh, 
the dollar bill, the Washington Monument, and the Library of Congress are all dripping with ancient African symbols. Did you know this? That's according to historian Anthony Browder, who has spent 30 years reaffirming the connection between the history and influence of Africa to modern times. He is author of several books, including Egypt on the Potomac, and I want to welcome him here. How are you? I'm great. Awesome. And I just want to also say our panelists are still with us. I'm glad they hung around. Kim Keenan, Ross Newman, and Drew Elon. So let's talk about Egypt on the Potomac. I think that that is an amazing um, concept, and you um, you you call yourself a tell me your title memory a, recovery specialist a memory recovery nice. specialist how did you come up with that well when you consider our history and the fact that our history has been erased <laughs> our past has been erased and the erasure has been forgotten we don't know and we don't know that we don't know mm -hmm. so my role as a memory recovery specialist is to dig into our history to uncover those things that we weren't supposed to know and then reveal them to people with the greatest need to know this information <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, so begin to tell me because I don't know this information and I sure. do want to know about it. So there are all of these monuments here in the capital exactly. that have all of the influence of Africa, of Egypt. Tell me about, and let's begin, like, for example, with the Lincoln Memorial. Well, Lincoln Memorial is a <clears throat> temple that was built in honor of Abraham Lincoln. The statue inside of the Lincoln Memorial uh, was crafted by a sculptor by the name of Daniel Chester French, who had traveled to Egypt before and seen the monument of Ramesses II at Abu Simbel, which has four images of the king sitting in his chair. He wanted to replicate that in America. Voila, the Lincoln Memorial. Okay, so at the Lincoln Memorial, is that information there? For people to read, to know. That kind of seems like a stupid question. Right? Oh, yeah, no. like, yeah, it's right there in a big no. spot. I refer to it as a secret hidden in plain sight. Washington, D.C. is the city of secrets. There are secrets in the White House, the Capitol, the FBI, the CIA, NSA. But the greatest secrets in the capital, the greatest nation on earth, have literally been hidden in plain sight. What better way to hide a secret and put it in the open where everybody can see it. And all you need to do is to separate people from their ability to remember what those symbols were. That's my job, to remind people. That's amazing. Tell us about the Capitol building. Oh, the Capitol building. Well, the, the, the Capitol building sits on Capitol Hill, but right, in, right behind the Capitol building is the Library of Congress, the greatest repository of history and knowledge in the world. So the Library of Congress is the American equivalent of the Library of Alexandria where the repository of the ancient wisdom was made accessible to the governors of that land so that they can control the people and the resources of the land. Okay, the Washington Monument. The Washington Monument. The Washington Monument is uh, what the Greeks referred to as an obelisk, uh, but it is actually an ancient Egyptian symbol known as a Tekken. That symbol is the oldest symbol of resurrection known to man. It came to symbolize the founding father of ancient Kemet, the original name for the country the Greeks renamed Egypt. So the king, Asar, was murdered and then later resurrected. That symbol represents the resurrection of this African man. It is a 6,000-year-old symbol of resurrection. So why is, it, why is it here in D.C.? Why that symbol? Well, uh, what you'll notice is that you'll see similar obelisks or techno all around the world. Originally, there were 1,200 in ancient Kemet, or Egypt. Today, there's only seven. There's more in Rome right now. There's a Tekken in front of the Vatican. There's a Tekken behind Central Park in New York City. There's a Tekken on the banks of the Thames River in London. There's a Tekken in the center of the Plaza de la Concorde in Paris. So these are all African symbols that represent symbolically, metaphorically, the resurrection of the founding father of ancient Kemet. 
Drew, you told me that your son has been on this tour and you've been on this tour. And so tell me what that experience was like. So for me, um, uh, actually our family went, me, my husband, and our son, and we took um, Howard University's early learning program and was a fundraiser. Um, but one of the things that was for us and for our son was just he, he was amazed. And he, you know, I like when you say you're a memory recovery specialist. So for him, everywhere we go, he was identifying Tekken and was able to recall ancient uh, commit. Like he really literally, he was um, engrossed in that. And I think Meridian Park. Meridian Hill Park. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Meridian yeah. Park and when you stand in that space and what you see? I know and it's probably kind of hard the, yeah, and also to visualize. The money, because I also yeah. want yeah. the money. <laughs> Sorry, um, but the Meridian Park was really phenomenal when you yeah. stand in the middle of that. Sure. Well, um, Meridian Hill Park sits on the D.C. Meridian, which is 16th Street. And 16th Street is what's considered to be a spiritual corridor of Washington, D.C. We have the White House at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. We have behind the White House, the Washington Monument was originally supposed to be positioned, and on the other side of that was the uh, Jefferson Memorial. So these structures are aligned to the Washington Meridian, which symbolizes a spiritual corridor. So on the seven miles of 16th Street, which extends from St. John's Church in front of the White House to its termination point at Eastern Avenue, you have over 55 churches wow. and yes. religious wow. institutions. Wow. It is a spiritual corridor. Wow. So, a spiritual corridor. A spiritual corridor. Uh, one of the names of 16th Street was the Avenue of the Churches, or God's Boulevard, yeah. because of that significance. Because of that. Now, tell us about the symbol, the money symbol. Symbols on the dollar bill. All right, today is Friday the 13th. It's uh, a day which some people consider to be unlucky. Uh, psychologists have coined the phrase triskaidekaphobia, which is the unfounded fear of the number 13. Mm -hmm. Well, if 13 is an unlucky number, then why is the number 13 repeated 13 times on the dollar bill? On the reverse of the Great Seal, you have a pyramid with 13 courses of stone. Mm -hmm. On the front of the Great Seal, you have an eagle holding an olive branch with 13 leaves and 13 olives. Mm -hmm. In the other claw, he holds 13 arrows. On his chest is a shield with 13 stripes. In his mouth is a banner with the words E pluribus unum, comprised of 13 letters. And above his head is a cluster of 13 stars. So 13 is not an unlucky number. It relates back to the founding father of ancient Kemet, Asar, whose body was cut into 14 pieces, but his wife only found 13. So 13 symbolizes the remembering of the body of Asar, which is why you have 13 courses of stone on the pyramid, which symbolizes the body of the United States, 13 colonies coming together, and the right. 14th part is encased in a square with an eye uh, on top of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. Okay, blow my mind. With all of this information, and yeah. Can I give an unsolicited okay. shout out oh, real quick, quick for Kathy Hughes and Alfred Ligon and Roland Martin for having this particular show? Because oh, yeah. you don't get this kind of, this Listen, knowledge right. is not dropping. Yeah. Please right. right. tell everybody where they can find you, yeah. how they can take the tour, and all the Absolutely. information they need yeah. to get in touch. They can go to our website, which is www ikg-info.com. Simple and easy, we're there. Okay, and is there a phone number or just go to the website? Uh, they can go to the website and okay. get all the contact info. Um, that's just amazing, and especially during Black History Month. I mean, exactly. this is if you ever want to like go ahead and learn this information, exactly. this would be the perfect time. But any time during the year is great. It's Egypt on the Potomac, and Anthony Browder is the author. All right, so that was my man, Tony Browder. <laughs> you can go and listen to uh, the uh, interviews I've done with Tony. Listen to the podcast. You can hear the interviews I've done with Tony. Okay, so um, we're about to start back up. And uh, Okay, so welcome back to the African History Network show. 
And uh, we're about to start broadcasting again on Facebook Live also. So let's start this back up. <coughs> Excuse me. So we're here for a little while longer. All right. Welcome back on Facebook. Hey, this is Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. Hey, you li- you're listening and watching to the African History Network show. We are back. Uh, we're broadcasting on the Blog Talk Radio Network, uh, our Blog Talk Radio channel, blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show, blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show. And we're broadcasting on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network, the African History Network. We're broadcasting on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network, the African History Network as well. Okay. So we're part. We're back uh, after the break. Um, so we're going to talk about um, the creator of the HBO series Game Game of Thrones. Okay, uh, they've come up with a brilliant idea to have a TV show that looks at uh, uh, what would America be like if the South uh, won the Civil War. What would America be like if the South won the Civil War? All right. So we're going to talk about that in uh, just a minute here and uh, share this broadcast on your um, Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in. Also, share this broadcast on your Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in. Also. okay. All right. Okay, so we're back on uh, we're back on Facebook here. All right. So how's everybody doing? Okay, well, excuse me. Okay, so you may have heard um, about this, about a new uh, proposed TV series called Confederate. It's called Confederate. Now, it's from the creators of the uh, HBO series Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, and I've never seen that show before. I've heard of it, never seen the show before, all right? But it's from creators David ben- uh, uh, Benioff and D.B. Wise, D.B. Wise, okay? And the, uh, it, so it's from these creators, but also uh, the produce, two of the producers on the show are two African-Americans, Nichelle Tramble Spellman and Malcolm Spellman, okay? Husband and wife team. And since this story has come out, they have all been getting backlash behind this idiotic idea. All right. So the uh, AtlantaBlackStar.com had an article from July 20th, 2017, Game of Thrones creators to develop series about an America where slavery was never abolished. Game of Thrones creator to uh, create a Series about an America where slavery was never abolished. And in the article, it says, as Game of Thrones enters its seventh and final season, the creators have set their sights on a new series about an America where slavery still exists and many are riled up about it. Okay. Uh, David Benioff and D.B. Wise are developing the HBO series Confederate which depicts an alternate American history where the South successfully succeeded from the Union, leading to the Third Civil War. 
okay, leading to the Third Civil War. In doing so, quote, a nation in which slavery remains legal and has evolved into a modern institution, end quote. Uh, and this is, uh, this is according to a press release from Wednesday, July 19, 2017, all right? Now, this is in the era of Donald Trump where we've seen a rise in white supremacy, where we've seen a drastic rise in hate crimes among African-Americans, Hispanics, um, uh, Muslims, Arabs, different things like this, right? During Donald Trump's campaign, outside of his, uh, a lot of his rallies, you would see people with Confederate flag, Confederate battle flag memorabilia, because what people think is the Confederate flag is not really the Confederate flag. It's the Confederate battle flag. Okay, it's the Confederate battle flag of Northern Virginia under General Robert E. Lee's uh, under General Robert E. Lee's command. What people think is the Confederate flag never flew over the Confederate States of America. There are three flags that flew over the Confederate States of America from 1861 to 1865. That flag is never one of them. Okay, that flag that you see on top of the General Lee car. Uh, that you see people have on belt buckles on the back of pickup trucks, that flag never flew over the Confederate States of America. Okay, so it's important for people to understand its history. So, uh, according to the article from AtlantaBlackStar.com and according to the press release from July 19, 2017, the story follows a broad swath of characters on both sides of the Mason-Dixon demilitarized zone. Freedom fighters, slave hunters, politicians, abolitionists, journalists, the executives of a slaveholding conglomerate, uh, and the families of people in the in the thrall in their thrall. Okay. Now the drama, which will begin production uh, after uh, Goatee, uh, after a Game of Thrones uh, wraps up in 2018, was originally going to be a feature film. But the creators of Games of Thrones, Game of Thrones decided HBO was a better avenue to tell the story. Okay? So when this news came out, you know, so uh, black Twitter and social media uh, struck back and said this is not a good idea. So you had comments on social media. You had some people saying HBO new series, HBO's new series, Confederate. Uh, is nope, 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 whole lot of nope. Um, you had somebody else uh, said, uh, like, even if Confederate is critical of current day racism, do we need another series about the suffering of people of color written by white men? Okay. Now, you have some um, two African Americans involved in this nonsense as well. Okay. And I'm going to show you this article here. Because I don't want you to think I'm making this up, okay? And name of the article, Game of Thrones creators to develop series about uh, an America where slavery was never abolished, okay? This is from AtlantaBlackStar.com. Very, very good news source, AtlantaBlackStar.com, okay? All right, now, when we look at some of the social media comments, 
uh, Zora Neil Hustlin uh, on Twitter said the fandom uh, for the new HBO show Confederate is going to be tragic. Can you imagine? Um, can you can you imagine how much harm imagery, how, how much harmful imagery they're going to produce? Okay, the fandom for the new HBO show Confederate is going to be tragic. Can you imagine how much harmful imagery imagery they're going uh, they're going to produce? Um, Lexi Alexander uh, Lex, Lexi Alexander said eighty percent of my timeline is pissed off that HBO uh, about the HBO Confederate show. Um, okay, so you have these different types of comments, right? And I've done, I, I did a present, I did a, uh, uh, a presentation when we talked about the TV show Underground being canceled. And I talked about the problem with slave movies and slave themed TV shows. The problem with slave movies and the slave themed TV shows, that how it reinforces this 1619 myth, the myth that, um, uh, the history of African-Americans started in this country, August 20th, 1619. Okay. And how it locks us into that history, but also it can be very traumatic to see these, uh, especially for a uh, TV show and to see us each week running for our lives and being dehumanized and beaten and killed, different things like this at the hands of white supremacy. Also, if you want to make a documentary about slavery, okay. I understand that a weekly TV show. No, a weekly TV show. Absolutely not. Okay. Um, so if we look at the article from uh, Game of Thrones, uh, uh, if you look at the article from uh, July 21st, 2017, okay. Um, from the root.com Game of Thrones creator on Confederate series. We, we, we might mess up, but we haven't yet. Okay. And, uh, so check out this article also. All right. So in the article, they talk about the African-American couple that is um, involved in this project also. OK. And you have Nichelle Tramble Spellman and Malcolm Spellman. They were interviewed by Vulture.com about the backlash that they have received and the producers have received uh, and, the, and the creators, I should say the creators of this project have received as well. And um, Nichelle and, and, and Melman, who are African-American, they indicated that no scripts have been written yet. However, I guess that's a, that's a good thing. Okay. That's a good thing. No scripts have been written yet. So um, David Benioff, one of the uh, co-creators of Game of Thrones said, so everything is brand new and nothing has been written. I guess that's what uh, I guess that was that's what was a little bit surprising about some of this outrage. It's just a little premature. Uh, you know, we might f it up, but we haven't yet. Well, you already f it up when you come out with this type of uh, even idea. Okay, come up with an idea that says what if Adolf hit? What if Germany won World War Two? And Adolf Hitler did not die and Jews were still in internment camps. Or what if, uh, you know, Jews were still in concentration camps? Come out with a project like that and see what happens. See, they would never come up. They would never come up with something like that. So 
the article from um, Yasha Callahan from July 21st from um, theroot.com, she says, not sure why outrage would be a surprise. Uh, she says, people are allowed to voice their opinions about whether to show support or outrage. And just because you have fans for one show doesn't mean you're beyond reproach, okay? But see, in my opinion, to even entertain doing a a weekly TV show about something like this shows an insensitivity to African-American history and actually what happened to us. And it's even insulting to have African-Americans even involved in something like this. Okay, so in a video posted on her Twitter feed, journalist and the root uh, dot com contributor Rebecca Theodore Vashon expressed what many Game of Thrones fans seem to feel about the news. She said, y'all are good with dragons. Uh, Y'all are good with magic when it comes to black people. No, I do not trust you. Okay, because I have a real problem with, uh, you know, oftentimes other people telling our stories. So, interesting enough, both both of the Spellmans, Nichelle Tramble Spellman and Malcolm Spellman, deleted their Twitter accounts once they received backlash behind the news of this project. But they say they are black creatives and they understand the concerns. Now, Nichelle Tramble Spellman said, I, I do understand their concerns. I wish their concern had been reserved to the night of the premiere on HBO on a, on a Sunday night when they watched. And then they made a decision after they watched an hour of television as to whether or not we succeeded in what we set out to do. Well, when you have something that's an idea this bad, you need to nip this in the bud. When you have something that's an idea this bad, you need to nip this in the bud. You don't even want this to get into production. You don't even want this to get into production. And this is at a, this is at a time when you have Republicans consistently trying to strip away voting rights of African Americans. You have Republicans trying to do everything they can to put us as close back as a whole into some type of slavery. You have Donald Trump and his administration reversing policy after policy after policy that President Obama put in place. And many of those policies were actually beneficial to African Americans. Most of us don't know this because we don't study politics and we don't study policy. Most of our people don't know that the U.S. prison population is the lowest it's been in 20 years. It's down to 1.53 million. Largely because of policies from President Obama and his Department of Justice that backed off of because he directed his Department of Justice, first under Attorney General Eric Holder, then under uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch, not to charge low level nonviolent drug, uh, 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 not to charge low level nonviolent drug offenders with the harshest, longest sentences. Okay. And then also because states started prescribing a lot of uh, uh, treatment uh, for uh, drug addicts and things like this over incarceration. 
the U.S. prison population has dropped to its lowest point in 20 years. It, it, it went from 2.3 million, a peak of about 2.3 million, down to 1.53 million. Newsweek.com had an article about this. Most of our people don't know this. Newsweek.com had an article about this, and uh, I read the Department of Justice uh, report from December uh, 2016 that talked about this. Okay, and the name of the article from um, Newsweek. We'll post a, a link here on the thread of the Facebook broadcast. You can read this because I think in the article they have a link to the um, they have a link to the um, report from the Department of Justice. Okay, U.S. prison population uh, exceeded one and a half million in 2015. Okay, so you can check out this article. We'll post the link here on the thread of the broadcast. But there are a lot of policies that President Obama actually had in place that many of us didn't even know existed, existed because a lot of us don't read, don't pay attention to politics, even though politics impact every aspect of your life. Okay? So then you don't know, since you don't know what happened over the past eight years, you don't know what policies to try to maintain. You don't understand how any of these policies benefited you, impacted you, okay? I'll also encourage people to read the document from uh, the Washington, uh, read the document from the Congressional Black Caucus called uh, What Did Trump Do? What Did Trump Do? Okay? You can download this from cbc.house.gov, cbc.house.gov. You can also download this from our website, africanhistorynetwork.com. We have it right on the homepage. And this deals with the first 100 days of the Donald Trump administration. And it deals with how policies that Trump is putting in place and a reversal of policies of President Obama that Trump is doing, how these are negatively impacting the African-American community. This is showing a direct correlation between policies and laws and the impact, the negative impact it has on the African-American community. Okay, this deals with the first 100 days of the Donald Trump administration It's called What Did Trump Do? What did Trump do? You can download that from our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. It's right on the homepage. Or you can go to cbc.house.gov, cbc.house.gov, okay? And that's in cbc.house.gov. That's the website of the Congressional Black Caucus. And, it, and you can look up each Congressional Black Caucus member. You can find out what policies they are supporting, what, what bills they voted for, all different types of things like this at cbc.house.gov. So usually when I hear people say, oh, the Congressional Black Caucus doesn't do anything, blah, blah, blah. I ask them, have you been to cbc.house.gov and looked at what the members of the Congressional Black Caucus are doing? Or have you been there to look and see what your member of the Congressional Black Caucus are doing? And 99.9% of the time, if not 100% of the time, the answer is no. Interesting. I just find that I just find that mind boggling. You know, if you you know, if you want to know what they're doing, go to cbc.house.gov. You can find out. Okay, so when we look at this um debacle of an idea for a TV show called Confederate. Now, this is really going to appeal to a lot of Donald Trump supporters. Oh, this is going to be a huge show down in the south. This would be a huge showdown in the South, because keep in mind, the South was bitter for losing the Civil War. 
The South was bitter for losing the Civil War. So, um, the, so both of the Spellmans quickly deleted their Twitter accounts once they recognized the backlash. But they say uh, that as black creators, they understand the concerns. Okay, so um, you have uh, one of them who said uh, the concern is real. Uh, uh, this is um, uh, Nichelle, Nichelle Tramble Spellman. She said uh, the concern is real. Uh, but I think that the four of us are very thoughtful, very serious, and 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 not flip out and not flip about and not flip about what we are getting into anyway. What I've done in the past, what Malcolm has done in the past, uh, what the DBs uh, uh, have done in the past proves that. So I would have loved an opportunity for the conversation to start once the show was on the air. Did you consult with Afri- any African-American historians about whether this was a good idea? Did you talk to Dr. Gerald Horn? Did you talk to Dr. Leonard Jeffries or Professor James Small or Professor Kaba Hiawatha Kamene? Did you talk to any African-American historians to ask the question, you know, you think this is a really good idea, especially in this climate, especially in this political climate with Donald Trump? who has as his chief strategist a white supremacist, white nationalist named Stephen K. Bannon, who was the co-founder of Breitbart.com, who Stephen K. Bannon said is the home of the alt-right. And you have a, legitimate, a, a legitimization a, legit, a legitimization of the alt-right now with Breitbart, okay? And you have uh, a legitimization of Infowars and these other right-wing uh, types of news outlets. Did you, I mean, who did you consult with on this? I don't know them. They may be nice people, but they don't seem too bright. I'm just saying. Um, so Malcolm Spellman said, you cannot litigate this on Twitter. It's not possible. I don't know that we can change anyone's mind. But what people have to understand is that uh, what people have to understand is, and what we are obligated to repeat in every interview is, we've got black aunties, we've got black nephews, uncles, black parents, and and black grandparents. We deal with them every single day. Okay? wonder what their response was. And I wonder how much they know about our history. But still, I want to know, did you consult with any African-American historians on this? You know, and um, like African-centered African-American historians also. I don't mean Dr. Henry Lewis skipped the truth gates. I ain't talking about him. I mean, you, I mean, some African-centered African-American historians. So Malcolm Spellman goes on to say, we deal with the struggle every single day and people don't have to get on board with what we're doing based on a press release. But when they're writing about us and commenting about us, they should be mindful of the fact that there are no sellouts involved in this show. Uh, me and Nichelle are going uh, are not uh, props being uh, used to protect someone else. We are people who feel a need to address issues the same way they do, and they should at least humanize the other end of those tweets and articles. You may want to think this through before you jump on board something like this, especially with white people. I'm just saying. 
So people are still, so Yasha Callahan goes on to say in the article from theroot.com, people are still scratching their heads over the concept of the show, especially at a time when relics of the Confederacy are now being taken down in the South and it's not as if uh, we're finally living in a post-racial society. So in New Orleans, they took down four Confederate statues, okay? Mayor Mitch Landrieu, uh, was, in, was interviewed on MSNBC, interviewed on News One Now. They took down four Confederate statues. You have in Mississippi, they're trying to take, they're trying to um, get the Mississippi state flag um, remade, redesigned, because it has the um, Confederate battle flag in it. Okay? You had South Carolina. Behind the killing of the nine African Americans at Mother Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church that had to pass uh, the state legislature with a two third majority vote, a bill to take down the Confederate battle flag off of the state's capital. That just happened a couple years ago. So you have all this going. I think it's 2015, late 2015. You have all this going on. And then you have people talking about having a weekly TV show about what would America be like if the South won the Civil War and slavery was still intact and this leads to a third Civil War. Just a bad idea all the way around. Just a, just a bad idea all the way around. Okay? So check out this article from... Um, TheRoot.com, Game of Thrones creator on Confederate series. We might mess up, but we haven't yet. Yeah, you already messed up. You already messed up with some nonsense like that. Okay? And uh, they should also consult with Dr. Joy DeGroote, who wrote the book Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Okay? Also talk to that sister as well, Dr. Joy DeGroote who wrote post-traumatic slave syndrome. Go to her website, joydegruy.com, D-E-G-R-U-Y, D-E-G-G-R-U-Y, joydegruy.com. You can order the book. I think you can order it there. It's not Amazon. Or you, well, first, check your local African-American bookseller. Get um, uh, Nichelle and Malcolm, if you know them, get them a copy of this book also, Okay. But that's one of the books we use in our online course, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, What They Didn't Teach You in School, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, What They Didn't Teach You in School also, okay? All right, um, so you listen to the African History Network show, um, broadcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, our Blog Talk Radio channel. Uh, the African History Network show, the African History Network show on Blog Talk. We have our shows podcasted there as well, okay? So we have almost 800 uh, podcasted episodes there. You can check that out. And we're broadcasting on um, Facebook, uh, Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network. So share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in also. Share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in also. All right. So we talked about Lapita Nyong'o at the beginning of the show. Gilbert Arenas uh, verbally attacking Lapita Nyong'o's dark skin and her appearance as well, um, saying that um, uh, 
she's ugly and to have sex with her, he would have to have the lights off, things like that. Um, very abusive. We talked about Emmett Till. Uh, this past Tuesday would have been Emmett Till's 76th birthday if a white woman had not lied on him. Uh, next, I want to go to this story here. We're going to talk about um, Essence Magazine in a few minutes. I want to go to this story here. We posted this on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network. I think it got over 1,000 likes. Um, this is about Dallas Cowboys, uh, former Dallas Cowboys wide receiver. Uh, Lucky Whitehead, Lucky Whitehead, okay? Now, he ain't, he's not a household name, so don't feel bad. Um, but he was cut from the team because he was wrongly accused of shoplifting, okay? He was wrongly accused of shoplifting. Dallas, he was wrongly accused of shoplifting, okay? Um, Dallas Cowboys wide receiver Lucky Whitehead was wrongly implicated in a shoplifting arrest in Virginia last month, all right? Now, those listening on the Blog Talk Radio Network, we're going to stop broadcast. We're going to stop streaming on Blog Talk in 60 seconds. If you want to continue to listen to the show uh, through Blog Talk, call in and listen by phone, 914-338-1375, 914-338-1375. Call in and listen by phone. 914-338-1375. If you're streaming on Blog Talk through the Internet, listening to the show, it's going to cut off in about 60 seconds. You can also watch us live on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network. So you can watch us on Facebook also, The African History Network, The African History Network, okay? But if you're on uh, Facebook, it's going to... Uh, um, let me see. Did, did we did, did this stop broadcasting on Facebook? I have to look at something here. All right, nine one four three three eight thirteen seventy five. Okay, so check that. All right, now, um, okay, so we'll go into this in just a minute here. I have to see what happened here on Facebook. Looks like we stopped broadcasting. I'm not sure why. All right. Okay. Um, I'm not sure why I stopped broadcasting on Facebook. We're still broadcasting on um Crowdcast. All right, but Lucky Whitehead. Okay. So, uh, NBCNews.com has this article from July 25th, 2017, about uh, former Dallas Cowboys wide receiver Lucky Whitehead. Okay. He was cut from the team because he was wrongfully accused of shoplifting. Now, I saw the initial story before this that said he was accused of shoplifting. I said, this doesn't make any sense. And I, I didn't know about him before the story, but I said, this doesn't make any sense. So Dallas Cowboys wide receiver Lucky Whitehead was wrongly implicated in a shoplifting arrest in Virginia last month, okay, which would have been June 2017. And this was re, uh, confirmed uh, this past Tuesday by Prince William County, uh, Prince William County Police. 
Uh, and this was an incident that apparently led the, the Dallas Cowboys team to drop him, to cut him from the team just hours after a training camp practice um, this past Monday. Now, in a statement about the mix-up, uh, police said they acted in quote-unquote good faith when they initially investigated the case involving uh, Lucky Whitehead, whose actual first name is Rodney, but they pledged to work with the Prince William County Commonwealth's attorney's office to officially clear um, uh, Lucky Whitehead, who played for the Dallas Cowboys. Now, this bizarre episode started when someone stole items at a Wawa convenience store uh, on June 22nd, 2017. June 22nd, 2017, okay? And um, a clerk pointed out the suspect at the scene uh, at the scene, according to police. Now, the suspect did not have identification on him, but he he verbally provided a name, date of birth, and uh, a social security number that matched Lucky Whitehead. Okay, so Lucky Whitehead does not know how they got his information, uh, especially his social security number, date of birth. You can get that off of Wikipedia. Okay, but Social Security number, he doesn't know how they got that. So police officers verified the information through the uh, through through the state's Department of Motor Vehicles database. And they compared the photo of the 25 year old Lucky Whitehead in the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles database with the man arrested. Okay, now I haven't seen a photo of the two to compare them. I haven't seen a, a, a photo from the license of Lucky Whitehead compared to a photo of the suspect. All right. So the suspect was let go and given a July 6, 2017 summons to appear in court on a misdemeanor, uh, on a misdemeanor petty larceny charge after the items were determined to be less than $200. Police apparently had no reason to believe the man they questioned at the time was uh, was not Lucky Whitehead, and they told uh, and they reported this to the Dallas uh, Morning News uh, this past Tuesday that he doesn't know who could have uh, Lucky Whitehead said he doesn't know who could have obtained his personal information and feels hurt that the Dallas Cowboys team did not give him a chance to clear his name either. Okay, now we know that they have been under scrutiny in the past two or three years because of bad conduct from players. But if this had been, oh, let's say Tom Brady, I don't think he would have been cut from the team, okay? If this had been Tom Brady or Drew Brees, if this had been Brett Farr when Brett Farr was playing, if this had been Eli Manning or this had been Peyton Manning when he was playing, I don't think this would have happened. I don't think you've been cut from the team. Even if it was um, um, Stafford plays for the, the, uh, the terrible Lions, okay? Matthew Stafford, quarterback for the Lions. I don't think this would have happened either. Very interesting. So, um, Lucky Whitehead is from Manassas in uh, Prince William County, okay? And Police Sergeant Jonathan uh, Perrock 
told NBC News, uh, quote, we have no idea how the man had obtained that data. Okay. We have no idea how the man obtained that data, specifically his social security number. Um, date of birth you can get off Wikipedia, but specifically his social security number. So at this point, the police department is also confident in confirming that Lucky Whitehead's identity was falsely provided to police during the investigation. Police said in a statement, the police department is currently seeking the identity of the man involved in the incident. Okay, and this is as of uh, the article from July 25th, 2017, which was uh, this past Tuesday. Okay, Uh, so the police department said that they regret uh, uh, the the impact uh, that the incorrect information had on Lucky Whitehead. So um, David Rich is uh, the agent to Lucky Whitehead, and he said police dropped the ball during the investigation and is disappointed by the error, okay? He said police dropped the ball during the investigation and is disappointed by the error. He said it cost my player his job, okay? And he deserved better from law enforcement. We all do, and he he made this statement in the email. So, uh, Whitehead was eventually alerted to his involvement in the case when the man who claimed to be him was absent during a court hearing and a warrant was put out for Whitehead's arrest. Okay, so it's probably a bench warrant, uh, probably was called a bench warrant. Okay, so imagine this. Okay, he does lucky Whitehead didn't know this transpired until a warrant was put out for his arrest because the actual suspect did not show up to uh, court. All right. So Whitehead maintained his innocence uh, when the news broke and said he wasn't even in Virginia when the incident occurred. He wasn't even in, in Virginia when the incident occurred. He said, I don't know who got arrested in Virginia, but it wasn't me. I never once had an altercation. I never once had an altercation with the cops and come to find out um, this happened, they say, at 1.34 a.m. at a Wawa in Woodbridge, Virginia, on a day that I was in Dallas until 11.20 a.m., okay? And he uh, made this statement to CowboysHQ.com, CowboysHQ.com. Now, the Dallas Cowboys uh, executive vice president, uh, Stephen Jones, Uh, said in a statement this past Monday, July 24th, that Lucky Whitehead was cut after he was given, quote, a lot of different chances along the way going back to last year. Uh, He said, I think we just decided it was time to go in a different direction. Okay, I think it was just decided it was time to go in a different direction. Now, Whitehead joined the uh, team in 2015 with a three-year, $1.58 million contract. Also, um, he also made headlines recently for saying on social media that his dog was stolen and taken for ransom. Uh, The dog was later recovered. Uh, Cowboy spokesman did not return an email seeking comment following the announcement of Whitehead's innocence. That's at the time of this article. And Whitehead told, um, Lucky told the Dallas Morning News on Tuesday, July 25th, 
that he doesn't know who could have obtained his personal information and feels hurt that his team didn't uh, give him um, the chance to clear his name. Uh, He said, let's not sugarcoat anything. I was pretty much being called a liar. Okay. And it appears that way. Um, He said, I was pretty much being called a liar. When asked whether Whitehead would seek his job back or why the team has kept other players who have courted controversy, including star running back Ezekiel Elliott, his agent declined to comment. Um, And uh, Rich said, I've got thoughts, but probably uh, his agent um, said, I've got thoughts, but probably best I don't share them. Okay. So we have a good ending to this story because it's being reported that uh, he was uh, lucky whitehead has been picked up by the New York jets has uh, been, has been reported that lucky whitehead uh, is, is uh, being, has been picked up uh, by the New York jets uh, off of a waiver. And that, that uh, let's see, I saw that article um, earlier today. So we'll give you um, the reference for that. Um, New York Times has an article. Uh, New York Times has an article about that. Um, Lucky Whitehead claimed by Jets after mistaken identity saga, July 26, 2017. You can check out that article from the New York Times. Lucky Whitehead claimed by Jets after mistaken uh, identity saga. Okay. And it says a man used Whitehead's identity to steal $40 worth of food and drink from a convenience store in Virginia last month. So over all this, he loses his job with uh, the Dallas Cowboys. Okay. So maybe, you know, uh, now if, if, if the New York Jets end up playing the Dallas Cowboys and the Jets win, you know, that's going to be uh, uh, some revenge for uh, for Lucky Whitehead. That's going to be some revenge uh, for Lucky Whitehead uh, if that happens. Okay, so I guess we can say that this story has a uh, uh, happier ending or somewhat of a happy ending. So that's a good thing. Okay, all right. You listen to the uh, African History Network show right here on. Um, Blow Talk Radio and um, uh, the African History Network, okay? So we'll be back in a few minutes. When we come back, we're going to go to um, this other story also dealing with um, Essence Magazine. Essence Magazine. We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. You to hate the texture of your hair. Who taught you to hate the color of your skin to such an extent that you bleach to get like the white man? Thank you. 
All right, so that was uh, Brother Malcolm. Um, Let's go to another clip here. Uh, We'll go to another clip um, also. Let's see what we have here. Okay, stand by. Listen to the African History Network show. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. Um, all right, let's go to uh, another clip from Malcolm. All right, stand by. So today is uh, Thursday, July 27th. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We have a lot of information there. All of my DVD lectures are there. We have a list of podcasts of the shows also. Uh, there also. Okay, let's get another clip from Malcolm.
Okay, so that was Malcolm from um, 1965. That was either January or February. That was done uh, by the Canadian Broadcasting System, the CBC, okay? Um, That interview was done. All right, so I wanted to talk about um, Essence Magazine. Essence Magazine. Uh, Essence Magazine is uh, in the news. Um, just a second here. Okay. Sorry about that. All right. So Essence Magazine is in the news. And there were a couple of articles um, about this. You had an article from um, BlackEnterprise.com, BlackEnterprise.com, and also an article from FinancialJuneteenth.com, okay? And it seems that uh, Essence Magazine is up for sale again. And it's causing people to ask the question, um, could Essence be owned by uh, African-Americans again? Okay. Could Essence be owned by uh, African-Americans again? All right. So um, I'm going to bring this up here on the screen also. Okay. Bring up this article here on the screen as well. So when we look at the article from Financial Juneteenth, um, financialjuneteenth.com, written by Andre Jones, uh, they lay out some of the history of Essence magazine, right? And a lot of people are familiar with Essence, even if you've never read an episode, and everybody's familiar with the Essence Music Music Festival also, okay? So uh, Essence Magazine is a monthly magazine that focuses on African-American women, basically basically between the ages of 18 and 49 years old. And it was the brainchild of Edward Lewis, uh, Clarence O. Smith, C- uh, Cecil Hollingsworth, and Jonathan Blount, okay? Blount. Um, and they saw a largely unexplored market uh, for African-American women, the magazine targeting African-American women like this. And they formed Essence Communications, Inc., uh, ECI, in 1968. ECI in 1968. And I know uh, Ed Lewis has written a book uh, about uh, the founding of Essence Magazine in the early years, things like this also, okay? So... um, so they grew from initial circulation of 50,000 copies per month to a readership of over 7.5 million uh, uh, readership of over 7.5 million people over the next 50 years. Okay. And that is uh, fantastic. That's a huge, uh, that's huge growth. So uh, essence was considered a uh, solid staple of the African-American community until the year 2000 when uh, Essence Communications Inc., uh, now, which is now Essence Communications Partners, sold 49% of, of, uh, of uh, the ownership to Time Inc., that's the owner of Time Magazine, 
and uh, Time uh, uh, Time Inc. is also a former partner to Warner Brothers. Okay, and uh, we'll bring up this article here. Um, this is the one from uh, um, FinancialJuneteenth.com. Uh, this is the article from FinancialJuneteenth.com. Will blacks regain ownership over Essence Magazine? Okay, this is from uh, July 27, 2017. Here's the article from um, BlackEnterprise.com from July 25th, 2017. Time Inc. Um, Time Inc. plans to sell Essence Magazine by end of 2017. The largest magazine publisher in the world says it's seeking a new investor to help unlock the value of Essence. Okay, is seeking a new investor to to help unlock the value of of Essence Magazine. Okay. All right. So let's continue here. Now, uh, so in 2000, uh, Essence Communications uh, Inc. sold 49% of its ownership to uh, Time Inc. And there was a big debate over this when it happened. A lot of people were upset that African Americans uh, that 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 uh, this that this took place, and I think this was after BET was sold. Also, I think this was after BET was sold. But the backlash did not come until uh, Essence Communications Partners uh, (ECP) sold the remaining controlling shares uh, to Time Inc. in 2005. Okay. Um, now there was discussion about this when they sold forty nine percent. The real backlash came when they sold the rest of the ownership. Okay, uh, so the remaining controlling shares to Time Inc. in two thousand five, making the multimedia giant Time Inc. one hundred percent white owner of a historically African American owned publication. Now Essence is being uh, unloaded again as Time Inc. places majority stake of the publication uh, back on the auction block. So it's up for sale. So you have people asking the question, can it be African-American owned once again? Can it be African-American owned once again? And you have people hoping that it's African-American owned once again also. Okay. And if we go to the article from uh, financialjuneteenth.com, they talk about this as well. So Time Inc. Um, CEO Rich Batista told uh, the Wall Street Journal that uh, Time Inc. is looking for a new investor that could augment the magazine's growth. He said, we want to unlock uh, the value here. We think the best way to do that is to bring in a strategic partner with investment capital, to bring in a strategic partner with investment capital. The initial sale of Essence to Time uh, Inc. prompted criticism uh, from people like uh, Black Enterprise CEO and publisher Earl Gray Sr. due to um, uh, ECP, uh, Essence Communications Partners, failing to extend investment opportunities to black entrepreneurs. He said uh, Earl Gray Sr., the founder of Black Enterprise, said, quote, it is unfortunate, however, there wasn't an, uh, an open bidding process in which black entrepreneurs could have made an offer 
for the company and possibly preserve Essence as a black-owned business and institution, okay? And this was the criticism at the time. They're saying African-Americans weren't offered an opportunity to uh, buy the 49% stake in uh, Essence as opposed to Time, Inc., okay? Now, so Earl Graves Sr. goes on to say there are a number of – just a second here. There are a number of African-American entrepreneurs or black entrepreneurs, including those who own and operate uh, uh, black enterprise 100s, BEs, 100s companies who have the resources and management capability to acquire and run Essence Communications. All right. And if you're not familiar with BE 100, BE 100 are um, they list uh, each year they have a, a issue where they list the uh, the top 10 uh, companies in different categories, okay, different categories, uh, automobile, auto sales, technology, different things like this. So the article from Financial Juneteenth goes on to say, um, however, with a controlling share of uh, essence, okay, uh, back on the market, Black Enterprise Chief Content Officer Derek T. Dingle Derek T. Dingle uh, considers this a chance for African-American entrepreneurs to seize upon an opportunity uh, that was previously lost to them. Okay. So I think this is a good opportunity. I hope a, um, some African-Americans pull their resources together to buy this um, entity. Okay. To buy this magazine. I'm not sure what the uh, asking price is, but even if Jay-Z buys it, Jay-Z and Diddy, okay? Jay-Z, Diddy, Oprah. You have Robert F. Smith, who's the richest African-American male uh, in the country. Robert F. Smith is worth two point, approximately $2.5 billion. See, a lot of people know about Robert Johnson, co-founder of um, BET. A lot of people don't know about Robert F. Smith. We've posted articles about Robert F. Smith on, on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network. He's worth about $2.5 billion, okay? But it's a matter of do they want to get involved in the magazine industry, something like that. But media is so important. Print media is still important. But you have Essence Magazine. You also have the Essence website, okay? Now, I'm not exactly sure about the ownership of the Essence Music Festival, okay? I'm not sure if... I'm not sure exactly of the ownership of the Essence Music Festival, how this works. But Essence Magazine, we have to control imagery. We have to control our own media. So this is an opportune time to do it, to do this. So Time, Inc. has owned uh, Essence for 12 years, as uh, Derek Dingle uh, uh, stated. Now it plans to sell a majority stake as a means of unlocking its value, the value of Essence. It would be fitting if an African-American-led group of investors could purchase that majority stake and apply new business and digital strategies to enhance the brand for a new generation. Okay, And I totally agree. This is an excellent opportunity. So um, those African-Americans, and they don't have to be entertainers because there are approximately 35,000 African-American millionaires as of 2009. 
and you read the, when, when you read the book The Wealth Choice from uh, Dr. Dennis Kimbrough, he talks about this uh, in the book The Wealth Choice uh, because he did a survey of 1,000 African-American millionaires all across the country. And the um, um, the overwhelming majority of them are not entertainers. The overwhelming majority of them are not entertainers, okay? So this is important to note because we we, we always look at uh, entertainers and athletes and things like this, but the majority of them, uh, majority of African-American um, millionaires are not athletes and entertainers, okay? Uh, like, like Robert F. Smith, okay? And he's worth, he's the richest African-American male in the country. He's worth $2.5 billion. Okay, so check out this article from Financial Juneteenth from July 27th, uh, 2017. Uh, will blacks regain ownership over Essence Magazine? Will blacks regain ownership over Essence Magazine? And as, as Dr. Leonard Jeffries, one of my teachers, talks about, whoever controls the images controls the self-esteem, the self-value, the self-worth of the people. Okay? Whoever controls the history controls the vision. So the power of image is extremely important. All right? Remember, what you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you haven't taught about yourself. What you haven't taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. Okay, and uh, um, your thoughts create feelings. Your feelings create actions and behaviors. Your actions and behaviors create results. Okay, so the images that you take in influence the way you think, feel, act, and behave, and ultimately influence your results. So this is why um, African Americans controlling their media, being able to tell their own stories, controlling these images is so extremely important. All right. Okay. So uh, check out that article, and uh, we'll stay on top of this story. And uh, be sure to uh, follow us on our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P, Michael M. Hotep, on YouTube. We have over 600 video clips uh, on our YouTube channel. And follow me on in social media on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Periscope, and YouTube at Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P, and our Facebook fan page, The African History Network. Uh, we have almost a million followers there. Follow us there also. And uh, also follow our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, or you can read my articles uh, that I write there. You can listen to podcasts of the African History Network show and my other shows. We have uh, almost 800 audio podcasts. We have a recommended reading list of books at our website as well, recommended reading list of reading list of 60 books. Uh, we have over 100 DVD lectures there and documentaries, and all 35 of my DVD lectures are there at our website also, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, okay? All right, so look, we got to get out of here. Thanks for listening to the African History Network show um, here on Blog Talk Radio, and then also listen on Sundays uh, when I do my show on 9, 10 a.m., the Superstation, The Voice of Detroit, 9, 10 a.m., the Superstation, the Voice of Detroit. Uh, we're on 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on 9, 10 a.m., the Superstation. And remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We'll talk to you next time. Peace.
just either blows up or becomes the law of the land. Uh, a great thanks uh, to uh, our, our journalists.